Coming up on Windows Weekly, I am Micah Sargent, subbing in for Leo Laporte, who is on vacation. And, of course, I am joined by Richard Campbell and Paul Therott. We start things off by talking about Patch Tuesday. Uh, Windows 11 is adding more features. Also, Windows is coming to HoloLens, too. We talk a little bit about where HoloLens can actually be of use, given that it is not really a consumer-facing tool. Then we learn a little bit about Microsoft Build... And Paul Therott gives his thoughts on Fluent 2 uh, with the introduction of Loop and how we can take a look at the future of Microsoft's design language. Then there's, you know, a few conversations about AI, given how Microsoft is really the company doing the big AI stuff. It's all about Copilot, Xbox Corner, and of course, we round things out with our tips and picks of the week. Stay tuned for Windows Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Windows Weekly, episode 824, recorded Wednesday, April 12th, 2023. It's called Flocculation. This episode of Windows Weekly is brought to you by Cisco Meraki. With employees working in different locations, providing a unified work experience seems as easy as herding cats. How do you rein in so many moving parts? The Meraki Cloud Managed Network. Learn how your organization can make hybrid work work. Visit meraki.cisco.com slash twit. It's time for Windows Weekly. I, Micah Sargent, am filling in for Leo Laporte, who is, yes, still on vacation. And yes, every time you ask me, I will, yes, continue to tell you that he's on vacation. But he will be back. Don't worry. He's just, what is he? On vacation. Uh, This is the show where we talk to some Windows watchers about all things Windows, Microsoft, Office, Xbox, etc., etc., etc. To my right, yes, to my right here is Paul Therott of Therott.com. Hello, Paul. Hello, Micah. Hello. How How are you? you? Nope, I asked you first. I... I'm well. Okay, you. good, good. I uh, I think I have a little more energy this time. I don't know. It's like it's wow. caffeine. Oh, okay. Awesome. And uh, to my left, uh, as as at least from where I'm sitting, it is mm-hmm. Richard Campbell. Hello, Richard. Hello, Micah. How are you? I am doing well. I have to ask you because I didn't ask last time. Mm-hmm. I've heard it uh, said as Rich, and I've heard Richard. Which do you prefer? I'm a I'm a Richard. You're Richard? All right. That's good the, to know. The, the Twitter handle is Rich because the Richard was taken. Got um, it. Okay. That, that clears happens. things up for me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let us get underway because it's time to hear about what Windows is providing this week. And uh, Paul, I think you're pretty excited because I, I just have to read. I need to read this opening line. This is the, I, I, I read this and I had a big old LOL. It says, <clears throat> in keeping with its threat to bring, quote, continuous innovation to Windows 11. <laughs> no, this is from the article. Right. Yeah, this is from uh, your article on Therott.com. <laughs> like, to say that? <laughs> about yeah. uh, Patch yeah. Tuesday bringing new features. Yes, they have threatened to continue to innovate, and they have done so. What's going on with Windows well, 11? The threat is not innovation. The threat is the continual delivery of new features after promising that new features would only come once a year. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember, <laughs> I, I think I remember an episode uh, talking to you about how they said, oh, we're slowing things down. Yeah. 
Not really. Yeah, so just to actually to bring you up to speed, because I think this is kind of a, a healthy uh, framing of this conversation. You know, Microsoft releases a new feature update or what we would call a version upgrade of Windows every year now in roughly October, right? So this is the 22H2 release from last year and probably the 23H2 from this year. Uh, but it also reserves the right to release features in between at any time. Um, every once in a while, there'll be a collection of features that are big enough that internally they refer to it as a moment. Uh, we've had two of those so far. I know. Um, one was in November slash December, which I say that way because frankly, you know, they didn't get around to documenting this until last month, but basically they do a preview version of it one month and then the kind of stable version of it the following month, which is actually just two weeks later because of the timing of the release, but let's not get caught up in that. Um, so in addition to these moment updates, they also have these like other updates, right? So one of the, the weird things that happen, let me see if I can get the time frame on this right, is two, 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 two. Yeah. So two weeks before the second moment release, right, which came out in April, but the, the preview version of it came out in Sorry, came out in March. The preview version came out in late, late February. Um, uh, we were kind of surprised by the timing of this thing. But since then, they've, they've formally announced or revealed that this is a schedule. We're going to do this now. So every time there's like a feature update coming of any kind, lowercase f, lowercase u, they'll do a preview version of it two weeks prior. So typically the, um, the feature update, such as it is, will come out on a patch Tuesday, which is what we just experienced this past Tuesday, two weeks before that at the very end of March they issued the preview version of that update. So we talked about this on Windows Weekly, you know, two weeks ago, right? Um, this is a minor thing uh, from a functional standpoint. Um, and at the time, there were four features they were going to release. They ended up releasing three of them. Um, this is Microsoft Account Notifications and Start, which I haven't seen personally. But the idea there is if you bring up the Start menu, click on your profile pictures, they could offer you little informational advertisement, things like, hey, maybe you should be back backing up your folders to OneDrive, you know, that kind of thing, like Microsoft likes to do. Um, there's a search box improvements. This is kind of a hard one to explain, but if you're familiar with the way and everyone gets the language wrong, but Microsoft or Windows rather supports um, system and app color modes. You can have a dark mode where everything's dark and you can have a light mode where everything's light, but you can also kind of mix it up where the system's dark and the apps are light or vice versa. Um, there was one of those that just didn't look right with the new search box they implemented back in moment two. So that's been fixed. Apparently, if you have a mixed color mode, I don't know how else to say that. Uh, and then there's some Microsoft Defender for endpoint improvements that only impact uh, people in managed environments. So, okay, cool. But now that the stable version is out as of this past Tuesday, they've actually added another feature. I'm hoping that Richard can explain this one because I don't actually stay understand it very much. But I can. There you go. There's something called the Windows Local Administrator Password. Oh, good. Solution. It has a great oh, wow. name. And so yeah, that's yeah. why I was wondering about it, too. I started to read about it before the yeah. show, and I thought, this is this is a lot. Yeah. So this just appeared not out of nowhere. They've been testing it, but it, it became part of this update. Well, yeah. And there's a lovely little storm going on in the sysadmin Reddit channel about it at the moment. And I and I, I feel for uh, for Jay Simmons, who just posted it up and is being steadily shredded for the past day or so. Uh, I actually did a show about the new version of Laps uh, back in January with our friend uh, Jeremy Moskowitz. Oh, uh, yes. But maybe we should back all the way up. So okay. uh, 
because this was originally built by the the premier field engineers, so you know it's complicated. I was going to say, um, I did lo- I did look at it. Yeah, well, here and here's the yeah. essential issue, right? Every machine needs an administrator, a local administrator password, and normally, if you're just trying to manage this yourself, they're all the same, which means it's a great vector for being exploited. You break a, a bad a bad guy gets into a machine by phishing, manages to scrounge the, the local admin password one way or the other, and now has access to every workstation in your place. So, same password back bad, different password, good. How do you manage all of these if you've got a few hundred workstations? Enter LAPS. So years ago, the PFEs built this LAPS tool that basically gave you a way to interact with Active Directory and a management console to randomly generate passwords for the admin account for every workstation. And it, and you were able to then use a master password to get access to that to be able to log into machines. And you could configure it, and many people did, where the moment you use that password, and when you logged out, it would change the password. Oh, and 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 run write it back, which is great. Like that's proper security. You know, it's sort of an acknowledgement that breaches are inevitable. People click on the wrong link. Like that stuff happens, but you're limiting the exploit to that one machine. So containment in depth, right? Great feature. What we're talking about here is the new version of LAPS. After many, the PFEs largely don't exist now. And the software has been neglected for some time. And finally, a group picked it up and updated it to work well with Windows 11. And that's what we were talking about with Jeremy back in January on Run As. You can find the show easy enough. Uh, the only reason everybody, and, and this is a much more modernized version. It's well configured and so forth. Uh and they maintain a legacy mode. So if you're using existing laps, you can work with the new version. It has a bunch of better features and so forth. Or you can switch over to the new mode, although that'll take some effort and time. And who's got any of that if you're working in IT? So everything is fine. This is great. When we talked about it in January, awesome. What you didn't know, what we all found out by surprise, like today is the new version of laps is on by default with new installs. Now, so what's the (laughs) impact? And this is the conversation happening in Reddit is IT person who cares about security has had laps running for years, sets up a brand new machine. It defaults to the new laps, which he hasn't got configured because he has the legacy laps and it doesn't have the legacy bits and he can't log into the local admin password because it can't find it. So he now, you know, he can get manual access to the machine and physically fix it, but he probably has a pretty clear deployment time uh, pipeline where he's shipping that machine and uh, and it's already installed in its correct location. And then he's just going to remote into it to take control of it and do the things he needs to, except for that part where he can't. Now, we didn't talk about this in January because nobody knew they were going to turn it on by default. This was supposed to be an opt-in thing, right. except apparently we've been opted Any questions? There'll be a test at the end. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, any other thoughts? Nothing but questions. But to be clear, I mean, so, I mean, this is very much for managed environments, whether it's on-prem or AAD type uh, Active Directory. Um, yeah, this is a, this is your, you, you're managing workstations, right? This yeah. is what this is all about it. And, you know, here's the, we, we talk about being in the cloud, but let's face it, you need something to get to the cloud with, right? Like we all have workstations and you want common management. You, you're responsible for the security of them and so forth. And how do you keep 500 distinct passwords? 
right? Right. If you've got 500 workstations, the laps is a huge and powerful service and you should be using it and they shouldn't be breaking things by creating a new version. Now I, I feel for Jay because I don't think he knew it was on by default. You're talking about the guy who wrote the blog post. Yeah, that put out the yeah. blog post and actually worked on yep. the new version of Laps. Like, good guy by all accounts. Sure. But he's having a bad... But now we can line him up on a plane like that scene in an airplane and everyone can take their turn with him. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you know, hitting with a pipe or whatever. Yeah. No. Well, that's that's already happening in Reddit. They're doing a fine job of it. Yeah. Um, and in the usual problems are there. Like, they haven't updated the docs. So, you know, you and it's not clear because... We're going from from one to two. All the docs that currently say laps are actually all legacy docs. Right, right. And you just don't know that they're legacy docs. So there's plenty of real problems, but it sure feels like a PM at the last second said, you know, have that on by default. <laughs> With the switch. And surprise. <laughs> so awesome. now now we're in the fire. I'm, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to reach out to Jay and, and have him do a run as with me or something sure. at some point. Because I not only feel for the guy, but this is really a great tool for IT. You know, if you're managing more than a ham- more than workstations you can immediately walk to, you want this, right? It is part of properly securing your office, without a doubt. And uh, and it's and I'm and it's a good news that it's been updated. That it's more, it's got a bunch of new features in it that's going to be easier to maintain. But it's, yeah, they just like, did you really have to trip over the deploy? Like, uh, here we are. That's common though, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're back to while. this whole thing of why is Patch Tuesday a day to deploy new features? Yeah, like you kind of forget that there are real people out there doing real things with real computers, and then yeah. they do something like this, and you find out how many there are. Well, and plus the schism between what the consumer is expecting from an update and what uh, it, what yeah. IT is expecting right. for an update. That's right. Yeah, IT expects it to be off by default, and that you yeah. enable it. And and then it's on a it's in a list of things I'm going to get yep. to eventually when I work on preventative stuff. And wink, this is wink. one of them. <laughs> but yeah. Look, legacy laps works, but it has some pain. So why would you break? I've already done the right thing, and now you're breaking me. Like, right. don't don't be surprised. I'm a little angry. Hmm. Can I ask you, Paul? Um, when they say addresses a compatibility issue that occurs because of unsupported oh, use the of registry, the registry, right? What is unsupported yep. use of the registry? Listen, wait, I don't know. So oh. it's it's amazing to me that you pulled that line out because when I read these descriptions, that one's like you're just reading. It's like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> they're, they're not saying something. And the funny thing, you're not the first person. So the the guy who works with me that writes news literally asked me exactly the same question. He's like, what do you think about this? It's yeah. like, I think I need to know more about this. I don't know. They're very purposely being vague. Ah, oh, I want to know what people are doing in the registry that mm-hmm. they consider unsupported. Yep. Mm, interesting, because there's there's it's, sort of it, whenever it comes to editing, making changes to the registry, right? Yep. You have sort of the little changes that everybody knows about and then you have or that many people know about then you have the ones that are a little bit more obscure where you are asked um oh i've got this problem you go oh just make this change in the register so you think this is even more deep and and sort of yeah let me, I'll, let me speculate okay. and i'll just base this is hopefully an educated guess um one of the controversies in windows 11 is that uh they've kind of stripped down the UI, they made it simpler and prettier and whatever, and people have lost functionality. And what people have discovered is that you can go into the registry and you can do things and like add stuff back that's missing, right? So for example, there's no way to resize the height of the taskbar, but if you know the right registry location, you can add a key, you can make it double tall or half as tall and kind of make it the way it used to be. 
And some people like to do stuff like that. So did Microsoft go in and change, uh, fix something to where people could screw on the registry and make a change like that? No, not because of individuals, but there are companies like Stardock, which has Start 11 or third parties that make whatever utilities that do things in Windows that uh, bypass things that are a little more important. For example, uh, there are utilities that prevent Edge from sucking up every search query you do, even though you chose a different browser. They're kind of circumvent this built-in behavior in Windows 11. And I bet there was a registry key in there somewhere that allowed some third-party utility to redirect something that was going to be redirected to Edge and put it back to your real browser. And Microsoft wants to prevent that because that's they do this on purpose. They're trying to um, direct certain things through the Edge browser, regardless of which browser you chose. So that my guess, I don't mean that to sound nefarious, but my right, guess is right. it's something like that. It's not some random... UI setting for, like I said, for the taskbar or whatever. It's something related to something like that. That's my guess. And and let's face it, when you edit the registry, you're essentially doing brain surgery on yourself. <laughs> yes, right? that's like, right. Yeah, but with a proper mirror and uh, good reflexes, yeah. it's, it's okay. <laughs> Two pairs of chromium tip tweezers. Yeah, like, yeah, sterilized scalpel at least. Yeah. yeah. Is my hand shaking? <laughs> it's, like the, it's like a weird question to have to ask, but yeah. yeah. Somebody... So to, you know, you, you said something like that, and, and it's, it's a not supportive setting. Like you can get into a blue screen situation. Yeah, you can, it's, it's, it's more importantly, you get into a PSS situation mm-hmm. where it's unsupported. That's right. And and uh, Microsoft at any time could revoke or change the way things work. And it's possible that part of this, well, it's probably not possible for this update, but it's part of like a moment two type update. They might make a change to where things are in the registry, and that thing might disappear. Things might not work properly. I, I want to take a like tiny that. little tangent here. Well, it's not a tangent from what okay. we're talking about, but it will take us sure. uh, from the next topic. Somebody in the chat has said this, and I just want to hear your mm-hmm. both of your responses. One of the best things that could happen to Windows is getting rid of the registry. But I can't imagine uh, that happening because it would require major changes to how software works in Windows. Is that the perspective of a of an IT person? Or is that the pers- like what what would lead to that belief uh, of getting rid of the registry? And would you well, because would people be upset about Unix it? uses plain text files for configuration? Yeah, Windows used to right yeah. Win any the INI files yeah right. So I, I think one of my earliest memories of Windows is I, I when I was in I went back to college in my mid twenties and I was as part of that I was working in the one of the computer labs and there was a problem with WordPerfect. It was running on Windows three one, which at that time was basically just pretty much out of date. It was, we were just moving over to windows 95, but um, p- people don't remember this, but the registry actually did exist in windows three. One is just that no apps used it except for word perfect, which is the app I had to call and get support for, which at the time was owned by Novell, I think. And I spent a long time on the phone with these people and they basically, they said, well, you have to open the registry editor. I said, I've never heard of this tool. And that we kind of stepped through what it was. And it was just, you know, it's just, was meant to be an organized kind of hierarchical thing that was supposed to be superior to what Unix was doing with uh, their own configuration files. And um, that was the plan. (laughs) I think there are a lot of things like as soon as you implement them, you realize we've made a huge mistake and now we're going to go and try to reverse it. And I, there's been talk about getting rid of the registry, I think forever, but I think, I do think we're so far in with it now. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, 
I mean, there's a, there is a way out, which is the same sort of tricks they've pulled with other things where, yeah, you can still edit the registry, but it's not actually a registry anymore. It's this set of yeah, files. Yeah, that's right. Like you could virtualize it, They'll do it, redirects and yep, things. And so that's forth. true. I mean, the problem we have with the old text file config problem is that you can put them anywhere. They can yep. contain anything. There's no sense of hierarchy to them. Yep. And so you never know what to change where to get the effects you want. The problem is the registry is in exactly the same place. It just also needs a special editing tool, and there's stuff in there that will destroy your machine if you if you mangle it too badly. So it's we're yeah, um, configuration files are hard as soon as you yeah. get to scale in any amount of time. Yeah, they, you could have done like an XML registry perhaps in the early 2000s. Yeah, I'm because sure we don't have enough angle brackets in our lives. Now, now <laughs> no, we but could, at least but. At least it's a hand editable uh, text file if you want yeah. it to be, uh, you know, and then you could also write tools to parse it, et cetera. I, I don't, I just it, feel like you could also create, it's easy when, as soon as you get in that mode where you get into invalid data, like you for, you missed a closing brace, you missed That's a right. closing bracket, exactly. you didn't slash it. So now yep. we have schema validation. <laughs> you know, I mean, one of the things you, you can't know, think I can solve that too. We're going to compile the registry, Richard. Hey. And then, <laughs> oh, wait, let's talk about hives. We can have multiple hives and we can yeah, have no, system a... specific <laughs> configuration and user specific configuration and we can have portable user <laughs> Portable like, versions of the right, right. You could carry a registry all, with you in a, on a thumb drive and nice. all of these things, <laughs> but every um, one of these things, ew, you got happen. your registry like, and my registry. Exactly. Yeah. And, and all of these things actually <laughs> happened. Like there was a period where they wanted to make hot desking between PCs possible by hauling chunks of the user registry between yes. machines. Like wow. they tried all of this. Yep. It was all problematic. And yep. now we are li living in the legacy of it, right? The registry. This is the Star Wars era of the registry. We're huh. in the D-Gen. Right. Right. And it, it, they all look like used spaceships because they are. Yeah. It's like the hairball we deserve. Um, <laughs> you know, it's um, it's I just don't I think it's so firm. I think it's so firmly ingrained in the system. It would be a multi, multi, multi year effort to get rid of it would require yeah. some form of virtualization. So that apps that expect the registry will still see it. Mm -hmm. But we've been, you know, we've been dealing with that stuff on a smaller level with file systems and locations of special yep. folders, et cetera, et cetera, for years. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah, there are still important applications, looking at you, Autodesk, that count on INI files that they can no longer write to, and right. so the OS lies to them. That's right. And when yep. they write in the, syst that, in the system how, INI files, right. it that's actually writes to an application folder. Work. Yep. Yeah, that's the way the compatibility shims, you know, and RIP to Chris Jackson, the god of, of compatibility shims, who we lost during the pandemic, not due to the pandemic, but right. something crazier. But he, you know, that's what they were doing is ways to lie to software to keep it running. <laughs> that's right. I don't understand the physics of this, um, but the registry is usually bigger than the computer on which it's stored. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so it's kind of, a, it's just a weird thing. Like I... The registry truly is. What a bag do you mean by holding, bigger? Right. <laughs> so you've heard of the term "the bag of infinite holding." Uh huh. It's it's kind of a um like there were like in the sense like there were more like there were more cells in your brain than there are oh, people. Oh, got it, got it, got thing. it. Like there are more locations in the registry than there are file system locations on yeah. your computer or something like that, or bits or on your hard drive or whatever. However yeah. you want to say it. Yeah, more issues in the registry than files in your machine. I think is fair. Yeah, yeah, something like like that. Yeah. 
So yeah, this this leads me then um, over the weekend. I remember getting a question uh, on. I love that this is a segue from that. <laughs> well, so you know, over the weekend, I was thinking. I uh, the question was, um, I've got surgery. I've got two Macs, and I want to have everything that I do on one Mac be the same on the other Mac. So not only just my font files, I want to be the same between the two. User state replication. Yes, user Mm -hmm. state replication. Is that something that the registry can provide on Windows? And is No. Okay. (laughs) No, but but, uh, the registry would be a component of Of some solution. Got it. Yeah. So you think like the, the, the highest level version of what you just described, like the simple, this is not exactly what you're describing, but there's three components to this, right? There's your data, which you could replicate through something like OneDrive or whatever you choose to use, mm-hmm. right? So that works. We know that works. Um, there's You could use a, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a uh, an app uh, app package management, what you, like a Winget or a, a chocolatey kind of an yeah, app, yeah, yeah. whatever, just, just to make sure. you could, At least you can do one click, install everything I need, you know, new install kind of thing. It doesn't keep them replicated, but you you get everything you want. And then the other aspect is setting sync, right? Which is something that in Microsoft's case, they added in Windows 8 and then have been detuning ever since. So Windows 10 took some of it away. Windows 11 took more of it away. Um, there are individual apps that do setting sync, like uh, Visual Studio Code does a great job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Microsoft Office does a really terrible job. Just from a percentage of possible settings you could sync, it's it's somewhere in the low single digit percentage. Terrible. Um so, uh, you know, between those types of things, you, you can kind of get there as an individual, but like true user state replication is something Microsoft chased for many years. Well, um, it still is, right? Yeah. What they're doing with M365 and Azure AD yeah. is still another attempt at that same yep. problem. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's hard. You know, it's a hard it is a hard computer science problem. It, it's, um, it may not be worth it, right? Which is why I think if you like, especially for people, like individuals. So, right, right. Um, you use whatever storage to, uh, service you, you do, replicate that stuff. That works great. Um, uh, replicating applications, I don't know. If you're, if you're all web apps, uh, and you use like a Chromium based browser, I don't know, Safari, probably Safari, but you can do something like sync the web apps you've installed. Like you could have all that stuff appear everywhere. That's gets you sort of there. Um, like I said, uh, an app package management, what the right term is, sorry, that, that type of thing it can help you at least get up and running on a different computer quickly and have the same apps. Uh, but the settings stuff, I mean, you, you need either a third-party utility or something built into the system to do that for you. And those are three different things, three or three or four different things, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, and speculating um, further out on this, as we get into the containerization of applications on the front end, like which yeah. which is a good security solution and, and solves a bunch of other problems, you could see this happening that you 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 log into your M three sixty five identity, which is actually Azure AD under the hood, and it has a set of manifests that are really just containers for the apps you're likely to use. And as you go to use them, those containers arrive on that machine, at least yeah. temporarily. They're all running in a security box. They have yep. their pieces of the registry simulated that they need, and and other resources. So, and you're writing everything back to OneDrive. This this stuff is sort of there, like. Um, there's a feature of Windows called uh, Windows Pro called Sandbox that allows you to spin up a really fast, quick, dirty kind of VM for testing software that might be bad, but it break, it passes through things from the underlying system automatically. Hmm. One of which might be part, I'm sure, is part of the registry because there's some mm-hmm. kind of there's a lot of pass through there. That's kind of interesting. You could have a Windows 365 uh, install up in the cloud. I don't know that this exists today, but there's no reason there couldn't be 
some form of pass through where I've signed in on the local system. I sign in on that system. My apps from the local system are available in the virtual system and perhaps vice versa, et cetera. Like there's, there's things that kind of get us to what you're talking about. Everyone, yeah. what you want is you, you sit on a plane, you tap on the tray, which is really a keyboard and the screen in front of you becomes your computer and everything's there. Yeah. Right. But you're, it, it, this isn't like a local system. You're talking about a system in the cloud. Yeah. This is virtual desktop, it. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and again, Microsoft makes that. They just don't make it necessarily for the purpose you're describing. Right. It's a, a, you know, the upright from terminal server, uh, to this new mode where really mo- most of the time what I'm seeing it used for is I have old badly behaved apps that can't be used in work from home settings. Right. So I put them in this, Azure virtual desktop setting, and then yeah. your machine calls into that to be able to access. It. Windows uh, to go uh, fall, fell. Is, is one still them? around into this nope. category? The idea that you have a, a complete profile I system. I believe that's attempt number four. Yeah, but, <laughs> like um, chapter four. And I'm pretty sure we're up to attempt number seven now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like we've been tiptoeing around it. What, what, what is it you're looking for exactly? Like what's, Oh no, know? that, that kind of was, that was, I just was just curious, not even to answer the person's question because they were talking about it on a Mac. And mm-hmm. basically what I had to say was, no, that's not a possibility on the Mac outside of, uh, MDM solutions that are for the enterprise. I just was curious whenever you were yeah. talking about, uh, taking a USB drive around and, you know, using the registry, yeah. if it was easier to do on Windows than it was on Mac OS. So uh, you answered How does that. Mac handle configuration files? It's Unix-based, right? Mm-hmm. So they have they must have text files. Yeah. They're basically... Yeah. yeah, they're XML, I think. Um, XML, and they, they, they have a cloning tool. When you move to a new machine... It will migrate everything to that. Yeah. So the the initial but, change can take yep, place, but yeah. to actually keep it in sync, you're just doing the files. It's not a full on. This machine right. is an exact so, copy of this machine. I, I've never done this because I'm not a crazy person. But when you install Windows on a new computer, Windows 11, one of the choices you get is restore from a backup, which it's Windows. So it's going to be like a tiny percentage of what you could be getting. But yeah. The idea is you'll get some amount of configuration you made. So, for example, I don't just know enough fact. to give you hope. Yeah, this right. sort of looks like the computer I used to have. I think it's yeah. it's designed for normal people. I'm going to make something up because, like I said, I've never actually tried this. But um, one of the things that Microsoft doesn't sync in Windows 11 anymore is your desktop wallpaper, right? So, possibly if you restore from backup on a different computer, one of the things you might get through that is the desktop wallpaper you had on that computer, and that would make this thing feel a little more familiar, right? Uh, I'm just guessing. I'm I I don't know that it does that, but it seems like it would. Like it seems like an yeah. obvious thing to. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that Apple is still very much in a state of you have a device uh-huh. that you use, as opposed to I think yeah. the reality we need to embrace, which is that I want it. I I want my identity and resources to follow me to whatever device I use, however yeah. temporarily. Well, that's mm-hmm. what the accounts for, right? The Apple account or the Microsoft account or the Google account or whatever. A lot of that happens yeah. through that account. I guess that's, that's the why you sign in with it, right? Yep. Okay. Um, now that I've gotten us off of that tangent, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with lots more to talk about here on Windows Weekly. Uh, this episode, though, is brought to you by Cisco Meraki, the experts in cloud-based networking for hybrid work. Whether your employees are working at home, 
uh, at a cabin in the mountains, on a lounge chair, at the beach. A cloud-managed network provides the same exceptional work experience no matter where they happen to be. You may as well roll out that welcome mat because hybrid work is here to stay. Hybrid work works best in the cloud and has its perks for both employees and leaders. Because workers can move faster, they can deliver better results with a cloud-managed network, while leaders can automate distributed operations, build more sustainable workspaces, and proactively protect the network. Uh, there was an IDG Market Pulse research report conducted for Meraki, and it highlights top-tier opportunities in supporting hybrid work. Hybrid work is a priority for 78%. Nearly 80% of C-suite executives, leaders want to drive collaboration forward while staying on top of or boosting productivity and security. Hybrid work also of course, has its challenges. The IDG report raises the red flag about security, noting that 48% of leaders report cybersecurity threats as a primary obstacle to improving workforce experiences. Always-on security monitoring is part of what makes the cloud-managed network so awesome. IT can use apps from Meraki's vast ecosystem of partners. These are turnkey solutions built to work seamlessly with the Meraki cloud platform for asset tracking, for location analytics, and more. And in doing so, you get uh, several things. First, you can gather insights on how people use their workspaces. In a smart space, for example, environmental sensors can track activity and occupancy levels to stay on top of cleanliness. You can reserve workspaces based on vacancy and employee profiles. This is also called, we mentioned this on the show earlier, hot desking, which allows employees to scout out a spot in a snap. Locations in restricted environments can be booked in advance and include time-based door access. And then MDM, Mobile Device Management. Integrating devices and systems allow IT to manage, update, and troubleshoot company-owned devices even when the device and employee are in a remote location. Turn any space into a place of productivity and empower your organization with the same exceptional experience no matter where they're working with Meraki and the Cisco suite of technology. Learn how your organization can make hybrid work work. Visit meraki.cisco.com slash twit. Thank you, Cisco Meraki, for sponsoring this week's episode of Windows Weekly. And we are back to the show. All righty, Paul Therod and Richard Campbell, what's next on the list? So <laughs> the Verge had an interesting story about how, actually, I should say that's Windows 11 was coming to HoloLens 2. Uh, which is the HoloLens platform Microsoft's been forced to keep in market for a long time now because they can't come up with a HoloLens 3 that makes sense. Uh, the problem was they weren't supposed to write about it yet. Just kidding, oh, everybody. No. They took it down. So apparently <laughs> they violated their NDA. Because um, we spent a lot of time trying to find the original source for this and couldn't. <laughs> and uh, It's been pulled down, I guess. Yeah, so it got pulled down. So I guess that's happening. <laughs> um, what does this mean to HoloLens? Not a lot, right? Not a lot. Um uh, slight performance improvements and I guess some improvements in getting web-based apps running on HoloLens with the two cited benefits. Um, not too much else, so no biggie. But what we really need is new hardware. It's been exactly. four years now, four mm -hmm. years. It was, pre they announced it before the pandemic, so 20, yeah. four years. Four years, yep. I was there yeah. in Barcelona for HoloLens too, yeah. Yeah, so it's time. For uh, who uses the these, these days? Who... Uh, 
Is it? Is there who? really a market? It's not so much a who as it is a what. Okay, what use? Uh, okay, which robots out there are using? Yeah, this? no, it's no. I meant by corporations. You know, it's a yeah. vertical solution. Yeah, right? it's a vertical so, solution. Yeah, yeah, it's so, not a an end user thing. But I mean, Holland's two is thirty five hundred bucks a headset, and if you're yeah. using it full time, it's about a thousand dollars. So month. who would use this? Right? Yeah, IT costs. So one of the great uh, examples I saw of a good use case for this is you're a car designer. Mm-hmm. You're building a car for Ford or whatever company. Uh, in the past, you used to literally have to build a physical model using clay, right, which must weigh the same as an elephant, and then have people walk around it and say, okay, could you shave a little off here? Or how does this work? And it was kind of hard to understand the spatial relations of things inside the vehicle because there are certain requirements because of the frame where people have to sit, et cetera, et cetera. But with HoloLens, you could design that thing in a 3D space, and then people could walk around with mixed reality or what we call VR headsets and uh, just see what you're doing, right? Because you as the designer would have the ability to go in and actually work on it, but they could walk around it and see it in 3D space. You could see it as big as it was physically really in real life. You could walk around it, you know, that kind of thing, right? Um, That's a neat use case. Um, there are, I don't know, eight or 10 people in the world that need that. It's not, it's like, you know, that's <laughs> kind of the problem, right? So yeah. Okay. Maybe a hundred, whatever it is. I mean, um, you know, it's, it is excellent and it's absolutely better than what they used to use before. And then there are kind of minor use case that I, I always really like the remote, you know, you're, you're working on electrical. Is it the blue wire or the blue, the white wire or whatever? And this little guy's up there in a Skype window and now it'd be a team's window. And he's like, okay, Bob, don't, don't pull the blue wire. Yes. You know, he can see what you're doing and kind of talk you through it. Like I kind of always liked that notion. Um, but it, Real world, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I did they, too. They, I, I thought that was a great uh, use case yeah. where, it, you know, I'm helping someone with tech, and I guess in a, it's a world where HoloLens is not as expensive. And so I could just say, oh, just yeah. put on those. I'll help you exactly what you need to do here. Or, you know, I could show somebody how to I, quickly fix a pipe. Stuff is, it doesn't, re- most of the stuff doesn't require what I just described. I, I, the car one, I think, is actually pretty compelling, but I, I've done a lot of, a lot of people have, you know, you have an iPad or something, do some AR thing. This notion that you walk into a museum and there's a giant, you know, bronis, well, I don't call them bronis, right? a patasaurus skeleton that goes off into the distance and you hold up your iPad or your phone to it and you can see the actual animal instead of just the skeleton and then you can kind of walk around it and see that. I, I think that stuff's really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I, did I just describe a major moneymaker for anybody? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not really, right? It is yeah. excellent, but it's, Siemens did a whole scenario around uh, power generation turbines. Yeah. And so their point was these are $50 million turbines and a full service on them is like 5 million bucks. Right. And you, and there's a problem with counterfeit parts and, and actually detailed records of maintenance and so forth. And the, uh, the folks doing the maintenance, their hands are busy. So having it on, having the goggles on allows them to keep their hands free to do the work that they're doing, doing the maintenance, bore scoping, checking blades, like all of these different tasks. And so the, the HoloLens should demonstrate not only a a more reliable maintenance cycle, a better record of the maintenance being done, detailed recordings of parts being replaced and showing that they were, you know, real parts and where they get their, their origins and so forth. And also being able to bring in experts in real time that a person who's an expert in that turbine but not in the same location can put on their HoloLens and see through the other guy's eyes. Uh, yeah. And, and I, that, kind of, that, that was what, yeah, that's the that's the compelling thing I, yeah. it, 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 at a really high level. I mean, I, I, I just feel like a lot of this stuff, 
you know, when you sell, like, you know, back in the 1990s, when you had a, uh, you know, you made Windows and you had Excel and Power, you know, and uh, Word, and you could say, look, you can, here's this tool you can use to do something. Mm-hmm. It, it was generally applicable to a really wide audience, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, one of the problems with HoloLens is like, we have this amazing platform and everyone who's in us, it's amazing. And it's like, well, what are you going to use it for? And it's like, well, I, I would, I would use it for this. And then the other guy over here is like, well, I would use it for this other thing. And there isn't a lot of overlap, like the Siemens thing you just described or the mm-hmm. automaker thing. The automaker thing, I guess, you know, it could work between different automakers, but I mean, it, they tend to be very specific to that company. Yep. And they're not universal. You know, they're not something you could resell. I guess uh, you have to, I, I have to give Microsoft props for instead of just completely ditching it all together, they did find that that little place where it could fit and they go, okay, I guess we'll just have to work specifically with these companies to make it happen. I just, I realized a great use case for it. If John Deere wants to get the government off its back, then it could start shipping out hollow lenses to the different uh, farmers who buy John Deere tractors. And then Mm -hmm. when something goes wrong with their tractor, they get the little John Deere person to come in on in virtual space and walk through the process. Yeah. Two states away or whatever. Yeah. 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 And it, it might, and that might actually be cheaper than what they're than the litigation right, they're going right. through right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I also compare this state with Hololens to very much the way the BlackBerry was like in like 1998. Yeah, you know, the the BlackBerry phone was the first phone that had email on it. But if you wanted that to happen, you had to run BlackBerry Enterprise on your custom exchange right. implementation. Uh, but it gave you email on your phone 10 years before we everybody got it with the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was for executives. The phones were incredibly expensive. The infrastructure was difficult to run. Like, it's very much in the same state, but it's how you get to the consumer product is that first the verticals find that value where the costs are worthwhile right. so that you can mature the stack enough for it to make sense to make a lower cost solution, a, a broader infrastructure solution. So, I mean, it, it concerns me that AR is largely stalled. Uh, and I think this mixing of AR and VR is hurting both. Yeah. Right. There's a real confusion in the market yeah. about what's what and what's good for what. And so I mean, it's I'm all, sure it's Apple all part will figure it out. <laughs> and, the, and the fact that the leadership has largely been tanked, you know, Alex Kipman is gone and so forth, right. just speaks to if it's going to live, it needs a new leader who wants to take it somewhere. And hopefully that leader has that vision of how do you get from a BlackBerry to an iPhone? Yep. I just feel like it's not going to, it's not going to be Microsoft. You're right. No, it, uh, unusual disruptors are not the incumbent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. Um, you've got a few related uh, inter- entries yeah, here. Yeah, kind of a uh, Right. So I, I usually write up an article every quarter when uh, both IDC and Gartner weigh in on PC sales. So far, I only have IDC. Uh, and, but also, there's another company called Canalis uh, that uh, Lauren has written about here. I, I don't usually follow what Canalis says, but whatever. According to IDC, uh, PC shipments fell 29% in the first quarter. So this, you know, the PC downturn that we saw last year is continuing. Um not great, obviously. Um, interestingly, interestingly, Apple took the biggest hit, meaning that they observed a forty over forty percent drop year over year in sales. Um, you know, compared to like thirty one percent with Dell or whatever the numbers are for each individual company. These are just estimates from IDC. Like I said, I'll I'll, I'll probably write up something when I get Gartner as well. Um, but 
there's really not much to say here, right? We knew this this is happening. The question is, when does this stop? You know, we'll see. We still don't know. Um, but <laughs> like you guys, right? I follow I have tech feeds. I follow a lot of different sites and everything. And it, it's it really there's a there's a kind of <laughs> clueless thing happening over on the Apple side, which Mike I think you might appreciate, where. Apple fell much harder than the rest of the industry, right? Mm-hmm. We're not used to hearing that, right? Mm-hmm. Usually Apple kind of outperforms the rest of the industry, right? So uh, there was a quarter last year when, you know, uh, the PC industry fell 20% and Apple only fell like 9%. It was like, see, they always do a little bit better, you know? So they did like, you know, 30% worse or whatever. Why is that? And the, the rationalization I've seen from some of these Mac blog or Apple blogs is, well, <laughs> I mean, their products kick so much ass that, they just didn't have, no one was upgrading because the uh, the M1 versions were so good when the M2s came out, it just didn't matter. And it was like, guys, get over yourselves. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> you just get over yourselves. <laughs> like everyone who needed to upgrade already upgraded. That's why. It's not because there's a problem. And it's like, I I think they have the same no. problem as everyone else. Well, <laughs> you and, know? and maybe they held it off longer. So they, you know, because they had such a small fall in the previous quarter, they have a bigger one now. Yeah. In the end, yeah. it's a, a downturn one way or the other. Uh, this is a, I even recommended this on run as it's like, this is not the year to buy new hardware if you can avoid it Buy the extended yeah. warranty because sure. we're, everybody's a little jumpy right now. It's a good time to spend less. And you <laughs> see the manifestation sure. of this. I'd also say this, I did rebuild, you know, I have two main workstations in this office. Uh, one of them I refurbished. So I replaced all the spinning hardware, new fans uh, and strictly SSDs, but it's eighth gen Intel with right. a, with a 1080 NVIDIA in it. Wow. And then I reeled a new one from scratch with a 790 chipset, 13th gen processor, mm-hmm. um, 4070 in it. You really can't tell. You Interesting. Know? Wow. Like, like, okay. it, and it's a little bit better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But day to day, you know, short is, yeah, the frame rate's higher on some games. And the, and the yeah, render time I, for some I, video I, stuff. But it's just... Sure. You know what? Computers have been good enough for a while. Yeah, and which is the one of the, one of the problem. It's it's a weird problem to have. It's a good problem to have, <laughs> right? You for know, us, one of the reasons yes. people don't upgrade so often is they don't really have to. You know, and uh, not to speak not because they're not using computers as much necessarily. Although there's a lot of evidence that they're in fact using computers more than they have mm-hmm. uh, ever before, but rather because they just last longer. You know, that might be one of the little slightly insidious reasons that Microsoft drew a weird line in the sand on windows 11. Like you have to have an eighth gen or newer if you're on Intel to get this upgrade, you know, we're not going to support it on older hardware, even though there's plenty of evidence that it works just fine on older hardware. Um, They are trying to get people to upgrade because people just aren't. And of course now this year, no one is going to. So, well, and, and honestly, when somebody says, you know, this machine is lousy, I want to replace it. My first, it's like, now that you're ready to get rid of it, let's pave it and see how much yeah. better so it is. You might as well, you're going to get rid of it any, anyway, right? Why do you see yeah. if it's better? Cleaned, right? Yeah, it's this like, is something. Really, this is software rot, not hardware rot. Yeah. If I have a dirty little secret to my uh, kind of professional existence, it's not, I don't do this like in an underhanded sense, but I reset PCs so often that my opinion of how well something can work over time is kind of pointless <laughs> because I don't use computers for long periods of time, generally speaking, right? I, yeah. I reset them all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean like every week, but I mean, I you know, but I reset them fairly regularly. And I think this is the type of activity that a normal person would be a little nervous about, which I get. But the reality is, if you're doing things correctly, if you if you're backing up everything or syncing everything you have to OneDrive or whatever, uh, if you 
can, can, you know, you're not doing something stupid like, oh, I forgot to, you know, deactivate this Adobe product I'm using or whatever. As long as you're doing everything correctly, it's actually not that hard. You can yeah. kind of. It's super common in the managed IT space, too. If when you're an IT yeah. guy, often the least expensive solution to getting someone's machine back up and running is paving it. Because yeah. you've built images for all of that. So literally you could fire a script off that blows that drive and restores it back to configuration while you go work on something else. That's right. So rather than wasting time diagnosing, it's like, make that go away. Or someone says, oh, I clicked on a link on an email. I don't know which email is. I can't find it. I don't think anything happened. You're like, <laughs> pave it. It's one way to be sure. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, it's, it's it, I don't know. It seems, again, I, I, I don't know. You know, I know this isn't people's lives. Like, the, I guess in some ways this is sort of my career. But, you know, you, you don't want to turn your career into taking care of PCs. But, um, yeah, but I hear that from from people a lot. And I'll do that for my wife. You probably do the same thing, your wife and family, whatever, where you, um, you know, they don't say anything. And then it, every once in a while, it's like, how's everything going? It's like, oh, this thing doesn't work. This doesn't, you know, it's like, just. Wipe it out. It's like, yep. Start fresh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really not that bad. It's got. It's it's very reliable. Well, and one of the things I'll do is I'll give them a new boot SSD so I can take the old SSD and hang it as a secondary drive. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, yeah. All your yeah. files are still here, but you know, for a for a two hundred dollar new two hundred dollar M two, what's sure. the big deal? Sure. A lot of times, that's the nice boost right there. Yeah. Um, Fast, story. clean drive. Yep. And and that is for replacing the spinning hardware. So there's no more ticking. It's not overheating. <laughs> That's right, right, right. It's like for for two hundred dollars in high end quiet fans and a yep. two hundred dollar M2 pretty fresh machine. Right. All right. Um, we've got one more related topic yeah. here. Windows three six five. Yeah, so Windows 365 is this uh, kind of Windows desktop of the cloud solution that Microsoft released a year or two ago. Um. It's been updated and upgraded in various ways over the years. Uh, they just came up with a new SKU or like a new product version called Frontline, which is uh, in public preview. And this is for retail customers typically. Well, not retail, I'm sorry. Uh, commercial customers. It could be retail, but it could be in other scenarios where um, they want to deliver the Windows desktop from the cloud for whatever reason. So now they can use a single license and it will work on up to three cloud PCs, as we call these things. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, that's fine. Um, I'm more amused by this notion that there is a new Windows 365 app on 2023 LG smart TVs. And it's like, guys, come on. Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> like, who's, are there people using, I know I shouldn't even ask this, uh, people are using Windows on a smart TV? What are you doing? How? <laughs> Why? What, what, what is this? What do you I, even, That's what I mean. I don't know. You maybe view things in your uh, OneDrive. You could see photos on the screen. Mm. Maybe I'm just trying to. You're like no, I'm to understand what the unacceptable. Point of this is, right? Yeah, I don't get it. I don't uh, know. Certainly, be a bigger screen. It would be a bigger screen. Yeah, that hard to hang a keyboard off it somehow. Yeah, you you already made the mistake of plugging your TV into the network. Exactly. So, <gasps> yep. You know, I bet you. I suspect that's why LG's offering because most people are just like, I'm not plugging. Yeah, this is like it's like network. an intelligence test. You get like a Samsung or an LG thing. Yeah. To sign into that account. No, yeah. idiot. No. What are you? <laughs> what are you you're, doing? Yeah, it's like listen to me. You're a screen. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Remember when you used to turn on a screen? And it would just turn on. It was just a screen. I don't need it to yeah. boot up. I don't need this thing to have a yeah. BIOS or apps or you know. Exactly. 
I don't know. Anyway, I, I old man I, shakes fist at cloud. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> old man shakes fist at uh, digital cloud. At stupid yeah. things. Yeah. At cloud PC. <laughs> at cloud PC. Hmm. But you you know the cloud PC thing is interesting when you think about the state of many people's at home PC. They're working from home, but on a machine that's remarkable vintage, whose fans are not spinning well anymore. Do you say remarkable vintage? Remarkable vintage, you know. <laughs> remarkable in that, its age? Yes. that And that fan yeah. is not spinning because it's filled with cat puke, like this, those kinds <laughs> of, you know, the state of some home machines. And so rather than in replacing that machine to say, hey, you've got a TV, do this. Now you're using a virtual PC. <laughs> like it's a workaround. The only time I've ever connected my computer, any computer, to a screen, like a TV, mm -hmm. has been I've been on a home swap or in an Airbnb, and I just it's just easier for me to access the my Netflix account through that thing or whatever, yep. and it, there's an HDMI cable, and I can just, you know, watch it that way. But even that is not a great experience, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's okay. I don't know. But we are but, not normal people. Like, You'd be better off if you had an iPhone or an iPad and an Apple TV. Your, that experience would be pretty good. Yeah, but if some yeah, if someone's trying to figure this out from a phone, and right. you know, working on it, trying to work on a spreadsheet on a phone, the idea that their P, their TV could be the larger screen is interesting. I um, mean, on a, I can see my TV from here, and honestly, at this distance, it's not the biggest screen. No, <laughs> so I mean, it's it's bigger physically, but. Uh, yeah, you'd have to get up close to it, but I, I, yeah. I hear you. I'm not sure who's using cloud PC. You know, no. I'm, I, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of shows on it for exactly that reason. It's like, yeah. show me, show me the use case where people, yeah. this was not, this was a solution. Well, the use case by. is that it's another licensable moment for Microsoft. Oh, yeah. They'd really like someone to figure out a reason to use it. <laughs> for sure. And, <laughs> you know? and, and LG wants you to plug the network cable into the TV. So like That's everybody's great. motivated except the customer. I can't imagine anyone doing that. I just, I, I'm looking to run a cloud PC, but I want it to run as slowly as possible. Nice. Oh, we have a smart, we have a smart TV app. Um, that might solve the problem. Yeah. It's one crazy. Way. Yeah. Because, of course, the other question here is if your PC is in that state, what's your internet connection state? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Right. Is it going to even go fast enough? I've got the can, the two cans and a string solution, right? <laughs> All right, let us move right along here. Um, it's time to talk about, I can hear it, it's growing, it's building, it's Microsoft Build, and it's time. That's like a Kate Bush song over there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's in the trees. Um, yeah, so Microsoft Build is uh, Microsoft's developer show. It usually happens every May. Sometimes it's April, but usually May. And uh, this year, for the first time, they're going to have some live audience there, although it's going to be a hybrid show. Most of it will occur virtually. So they've posted the session catalog, which is always a fun time for us in the Microsoft space to scurry around and see if there's anything interesting going in, on in there. And honestly, I have to say, uh, it's been a frustrating several years for the Windows fan when it regards to Build, because Build has mostly been about uh, cloud Azure type stuff. It's obviously this year is going to be very AI focused, obviously. Um, but there is a good amount of what I would call Windows content that they've published. Now, we'll see if there's more, you know, because some, some stuff they don't actually throw up until later. But um, some good stuff in there. I'm actually, I'm, uh, this is going to be a good show for me anyway. So, um, you know, Microsoft CTO Kevin Scott's going to play a public role. I can't think of a time 
when this guy has played a role, really? I haven't seen him on stage in a Microsoft event other than he was CTO of LinkedIn, right? Like, Yeah, I was, was right. Okay, day. I was going to say, I know I've seen him on stage, right. Okay, yeah. he was actually at LinkedIn at the time. He yeah. was CTO of LinkedIn. So if you don't know this guy, uh, the Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott, has he has a podcast, which is, is, is inter- can be interesting, yep. I should say. Um, I With tech podcasts, I do this with Richard's podcast. I tend to kind of pick and choose the topics I want to listen to. Um, I find more things to listen to with Richard than I do with Kevin Scott, but but there's some stuff in there. In fact, I, anyone who's interested in software development should go back to episode one and listen to his interview with uh, Andrew Seilsberg. It's very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, depending on the topic, I, I absolutely will listen to this. So he is going to present at this show uh, and be involved in some other Q&A type stuff. So he's doing, a, I think it's a session, I guess I'll call it, the era of the AI co-pilot. I think it's a keynote. Uh, Oh, it's a key, there, a yeah. keynote. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, right, of course, he's a CTO. So that's very interesting. Uh, but on the, in the Windows space, uh, there's they're going to talk about how they integrated WinUI 3, which is this modern user interface design into the File Explorer in Windows 11. Raymond Chen's going to be there, uh, which I is awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, su- I subscribed to his blog, which is the new, the old new thing. We also has a book by this topic. Um, very esoteric software development topics. Um, he goes off on these... He'll, he'll, he'll go off in a series. I'm going to make this one up because I don't know this exactly, but he did a series on, I think it was, it was power. I think it was MIPS assembly language, part one of nine, <laughs> like back from the early 2000s or late 1990s. Crazy. Um, uh, AI develop, uh, AI powered developer experiences across cloud and edge with windows. Um, best uh, programming practices for creating ARM apps for uh, windows. Uh, there's some .NET MAUI stuff going on there. Blazor, which is Microsoft's web technology, uh, .NET-based web tech, mm-hmm. including something called Blazor United, which based on the name, I assume, is a uh, a, a blur. Uh, Rich will know this. It's like, I know there's Blazor server and Blazor web, and is it kind of a full-stack yeah. web? So the original Blazor was based on WebAssembly, this ability to put whatever language you want into the browser. Yep. The problem, of course, is that the .NET framework is not a trivial thing to load into a browser. <laughs> right. and, and so as it became a product, and it's a great story around how long they took to make it to, into a product, they also right. offered a server-executing version. And normally you would select that sort of up front. As you start to right. build, make your project, you say, oh, this is going to be a server-side Blazor app. It's a server app or it's a locally yeah. running web. And so in United, you can mix them. It's like, what would you like to do? Do you want to run this on the server? You want to run it on the client? There are pieces where you'd like to run on the client. So just being able to say these components, say they're validating components run on the client. So they're super snappy. They don't have to make trips back to the, to the net hmm. server unnecessarily. And maybe some more security oriented stuff or stuff that's going to be data centric back on the server. So uh, did a .NET Rocks just recently with Steve Sanderson and Javier Nelson, who are leading that project. And they're exactly nice. that. We're just seeing the first bit start to emerge of this. Okay, but, uh, it's in the it's aimed for the .NET eight time frame. So by the end of this, which is year, November November this year, yeah, yeah. It should be November. Okay. Uh, the biggest thing though that I pulled out is there's a session on Fluent two. So Fluent is Microsoft's design language. Mm-hmm. Uh, WinUI, which I mentioned up front, is an implementation of that design language, right? Um, they are, they've never mentioned a version two of this. <laughs> so my guess is that uh, Microsoft Loop, which is this web app that's now available in preview, mm. will eventually be Windows Mobile, et cetera, yep. is uh, what I would call, implements most likely. I'm sure we're going to find out like what they're going to call fluent two design principles, right? Uh, that the, that the UI we see in Loop is no doubt 
the latest version of fluent is my guess because uh, I don't believe they've ever mentioned that term fluent too. So I would also note that the new version of Teams that's dependent on React also uses Fluent UI. Yep. So I think what you're actually seeing is the emergence of the rewrite of M365 stuff mm-hmm. with React Fluent together. Ah, okay. And yeah, because there so- is actually a separate implementation of Fluent design, like WinUI style controls for React. Yeah. Uh, right. And I, so I, I wouldn't th- be surprised I, I think that's where that's coming from. Yeah, I think uh, I'm sure this design language uh, or system kind of appeared and then, you know, people started using it. They started implementing the controls like in WinUI 3 it's, or mm-hmm. WinUI 2 originally, WinUI 3, whatever. And then now that Microsoft is using it in a bunch of different places, you see modern UI in, like you said, the new Microsoft Teams app, in the Microsoft Loop app, in the new Outlook. Yeah, There's probably been some feedback from these teams where they said, okay, like this is okay, but we should change this or this, or we need this, or maybe there's some things missing, you know? So I'm, I'm sure fluent two is probably part of this feedback loop yeah. that, uh, the same way the WPF four came along largely because of studio 2010, right? Like yeah. once a Microsoft team grabs onto it, actually, API, it. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then it starts they, to change. They kick the snot out of it and they know where these people live. Right. right. So they're jumping out of bushes and things and like, <laughs> it's fixed. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's, it is this, it usually is a rapid jump in improvement. Like it's a big deal to do that and, and it should be done early as often and, and often, but it isn't. Right. Um, but I've noticed cause I've got that OCD, the difference, the little differences in the UI elements. So when you see loop come up, like the icons are different, like they're just right, positioned exactly. a little different. Yep. They feel yep. different and teams too. It's different. And now I know why, right? It's are they actually, both different in the same way because this might yeah. literally be fluent too, right? Yeah. They, I think it's fluent too. And they're um, tapping a different icon set and a different frame set. And you're seeing that. I was just thinking about this the other day. I was looking at the, um, the settings app in windows 11. So if you, if you think back to windows 10, like one thing that might be lost on people is that the windows 10 UI was designed to work well on phones, tablets, and computers, yeah, right? Because that was the original so, mission. Yeah, and so you could kind of squeeze an app down to a phone shape, and it would look like it would make sense on a phone. And uh, a lot of this was like uh, really bare uh, icons that were just white, like frames on top of the background. And in Windows 11, they're walking away from that because, of course, there's no phone. So if you look at the sidebar in the Windows 11 setting app, each of those top-level icons is not a white wireframe kind of an icon. It's color. They're They're... They're filled in, they're colorful, they're kind of cartoony, whatever, but they're they're quite different from the Windows 10 icons that were, would be in the same place. And uh, I want, you know, I look at Loop and I see the same sort of thing. Like there's an emphasis on color all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that isn't a like a, um, a fluent one to two kind of a change. Like we're, we're introducing color and volume and um, uh, not so much outlines of shapes, but actual, you know, because design norms change, you know, over yeah. time. But also, I mean, Fluent is a derivative. The original Fluent, which was for Win 10, was a derivative of Metro, which was mm-hmm. Win 8. <laughs> so they were cleaning up right. Win 8 stuff yeah. in Win 10. Right. Like, this is only V3 of this. And well, you know, as we know well yeah, with Microsoft, yeah. it's kind of every third yeah. versions are the good ones. I mean, their the predecessor to this stuff debuted in Windows Media Center, right? And yeah. uh, and Zune used the the same you know thing. And uh, or, when, we evolved. could throw Arrow into this mix as well, but yeah. you know, it all cons- the 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 last rethink of design language was really Metro. It was Metro, yeah, and yep. they built on top of that. And I knew Metro was terrible, even though I liked it because yeah. they had to keep explaining it. 
Yeah. Well, uh, the, there was a I, lot of explanation like, listen, you're not a designer, so you don't know how awesome this is, but I'm going to explain it. And then 20 minutes would go by, and you're like, what is this guy talking about? Yeah. Why are you like Elmer Schum and those guys? And it's like, dude, if you have to explain why this thing is good, it might not be that good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I, and, this stuff to me is, I, I, it is different. Like you said, definitely. It's, it's, it's a little jarring in a yeah. way, but it's at least, I would call it pleasant. Yeah. Right. I'm not, I'm, I wasn't horrified at the new look. I yeah, just noticed yeah. it was a new it is look noticeably different yep. that hadn't been explained. But yep. this seems to be. I think this is. It, I think they're going to explain it. I think this. This yeah. again. I can only guess for now, but I think that this is it. I think that's well. What's and a, and the big thing here is: Are you going to share it with the devs? Right. That's like, right. That's once right. upon a time, there was a mechanism here. You built a new version of Windows. It came with a new version right. of Office, and then you know. A year to 18 months later, we got the tools in Visual Studio to make our apps look like Outlook, right? Like that was the pattern. Me, and uh, then Ribbon. Let know, me introduce a phrase into your brain, which may already be there if it's true, because you would have not have heard it from behind the scenes. But that phrase is WinUI 4. Yeah. And <laughs> and I have spent a significant amount of time. I'm not going to spend too much time on the show on this, but I have spent a significant amount of time figuring out WinUI uh, UIs, if you will, using the Windows app to SDK. And the one thing I will say, and, and anyone who's ever looked at this kind of thing is, uh, there's a lot of code, there's a lot of code. Yeah. In the old days, you know, Visual Basic, you wanted to be like, I want the uh, title bar to be a color. Title bar dot color equals green. Yeah. It was super simple. Uh, in this thing, no, you, you're writing code. And Tons is XAML code. It's like lots and lots of C-sharp code. So if they yeah. could do anything for WinUI for it, or whatever they want to call it, the WinApp SDK 2.0 or whatever, get back on the code, you know, make it actually simple. Well, yeah, it's funny. I recorded a show earlier with with Carl on .NET Rocks, and I mentioned we were talking about MVV, Silverlight, MVVM, and XAML. He goes, you know, I'm a bit tired of XAML. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because if you've verbose. ever done anything in it, yeah, too, it's verbose. There you go. It's, it's wordy. Yeah, it, it's There's too much code to write to do a little thing. Yeah. We Just used to thing. think that was a feature, right? We, it was like It's readable. Richness. Yeah. It's readable. But it well barely. That's a lot of angle. Well, okay, that, oh, sorry. But I, th <laughs> right. but I think we're getting more particular compared to right? terse. You know, terse code can somehow uh, yeah. can often be written to be obfuscated on purpose. Right? Mm -hmm. You have no idea what this thing does. There's a there's a carrot and a plus mark and what looks like a star and it means something. You know, but this is all written out. Yeah, and it's written out over multiple lines and it's it's horrific. Anyway, I, I I'm definitely hoping think we're in an era of opinionated frameworks. Yeah. And opinionated UX. You know, once upon a time in the in the old Visual Basic days and the old Windows 3 days, like there was a design language, right. right? It was the the multiple document interface, files on the left, helps on the right. Like right. there was a set of standards. And we kind of went away from that because we had so much versatility. Just like, do what well, you like. We had um, display density and height, yeah. you know. Lots of changes there. So so I wonder if we're starting to emerge into an opinionated UI space again. And uh, and I'm, well, for one, delighted because I'd rather not think too much about this stuff. I just right, right, like, make my stuff yep. not suck. Isn't that I Windows Vista? Help people. The opinionated uh, UI? The opinionated, the wrong uh, opinion. Yeah. Um, now, Windows 8 was the, <laughs> we have an opinionated UI and you're wrong. Um, By the way, if if, if you want to see the Longhorn demo that survived everything, mm. uh, you can do. Anyone can do this with Windows 11 at least. I assume Windows 10. Uh, bring up the calculator app and just start stretching that thing out. Just pull it around and it resizes and rescales. And that was that was literally one of the very first Longhorn demos of all time. 
which was about uh, high DPI displays and how apps could scale to meet the demands of different uh, types of screens. Yeah, uh, the turn, on the, 11, uh, turn on the scientific mode so you have lots of cool buttons to play. Yeah, there you go. But you see, you see what I'm saying. It, it yeah. kind of you know pulls in every direction and it works really well. And uh, there is really no other app that kind of does that. <laughs> but yeah. that was how they demoed it. They're like, look, this is what all apps are going to be like. And, and now I'm we have one exact Pretty sure app it was built like by interns too, you know. Like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, as, is, as is common. 100%. So anyway. at, at Build, I do have a question. Do you think that – so we saw Microsoft um, – showing off a lot of uh, its AI chops and then also sort of rebranding all of the AI stuff that it was doing as Copilot. Yeah. And we know we're going to hear more about that based on what was what the titles yeah. are. But my question for you is, how much new stuff do you think we're going to see? Or did Microsoft kind of show it off earlier to show that they, you know, we're on it, we're doing it, oh. we're making it, or are we going to see some new stuff, do you think? I mean, well, I mean, there are multiple levels to this, right? So there's the co-pilot capabilities that will end up in specific applications, right? Like one one note we have in the notes here because they mm -hmm. announced it. But we know it's coming to Word and Excel and everything else. And, and it's not hard to imagine how might a co-pilot functionality, you know, help you start a Word document or create a PowerPoint presentation. It's, it's That's pretty straightforward, right? It's it's a matter of timing and and, and you know, what platforms it appears on first, et cetera. I think the more important thing for build and the reason maybe Kevin Scott, although yeah, yeah. Really I think Scott's do. leading this and you look at his title, like yeah. he's literally like co-pilot. So I, I think he's the co-pilot. That's what he should, he should rename himself. The co-pilot yeah. or is his brain. He should rebrand his title yeah. um, is how can we bring these capabilities to developers so that they can provide co-pilot like I'll just, uh, AI for lack of a better term capabilities in their own solutions wherever those solutions may run, right? Um, desktop platforms like Windows, but also mobile and then uh, just cloud services, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a developer conference. I mean, it's not, they're going to, because they want the press, they're going to show off cool end user features. Like Apple does the same thing at WWDC. Yeah. Google does the same thing at Google I.O. Microsoft will absolutely always has done it. But yeah. the real... This, this may be their one yeah. more thing. Yeah. The real bit is, yeah, so... This this AI thing happening. Microsoft is uh, asterisk asterisk kind of on the leading edge of it. How are we going to bring those capabilities to you? I have to say, as a developer, I if I were a developer, I would be very excited by the possibility that Microsoft has invested tens of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, into a technology that that he can then license to me, and I don't have to make that investment. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so we'll, well see. I don't know. I would argue there's Azure Open AI. Like we're already yeah. seeing piece of this in the cognitive services tool set. Yeah, that's true. so. Definitely. But it, it seems like a logical close to a keynote at build yep. to say, you, even if it isn't shipping at that point. Is it you're getting an AI. You're getting an AI. <laughs> Everybody look under you're your chairs. Getting, yeah. There's yeah. an AI under there. Yeah, how do I get the whole room cheering? That's look under your chairs. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little. It looks like a virus. Don't worry. <laughs> I promise. It's just AI. You're fine. Yeah. 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 I, that's, that's pretty brilliant though if yeah. if that is what ends up happening because i mean if suddenly all of these apps and services can start saying oh yeah it's, well it's that, but that's what they do right microsoft makes platforms right i, yeah. I know they, they sell do. apps to people and they sell services and stuff like that but i mean I'll, at, the, at the end of the day they are a developer company and they're a platform company mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, this capability is not something that just is given to the office team or whatever 
Um, this is something we're going to license for developers to put into their own stuff as well. Yeah. The goal is to sell as much Azure as possible, and Copilot runs on Azure. Oh, it's a dream come true. Yeah. We're looking for something that will up consumption. Oh, well, yeah. listen. <laughs> We've got, you know, it's this is it. It's I'm like now giving you, you a capability. A and it turns into a giant thing. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've, given you, I've given you a capability with no definition of how much resource it's going to consume. That's right. Enjoy. That's right. That's right. Just sign here. Uh, you, we've got your credit card. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely going to be some, there has to be something along those lines. This, oh, it's sure. Microsoft. And everybody wants to have an existential conversation with their accounting software. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, we're going to see a lot of stupid AI, you know, this. I, oh, yeah. Think back to like 1988 or whatever year it was, and uh, desktop publishing was becoming a thing thanks to Apple and Adobe. And uh, all of a sudden, every document turned into like a ransom note with like every letter was a different. Yes, font, a different, know? Yeah, exactly. Different colors, yeah. AI is going to be like that. It's going to just show up in stupid places. I'd like an AI sandwich, please. Uh, just um, use what it knows about me to make something I might like. All it's right. kind of the you metric know, of you know, it's, it. you know it's there when you oh, yeah. can shoot your foot off with it. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's going to happen. Let's see. Um, please give me a recipe for a sandwich for a man who has devoted his life to covering Microsoft and surrounding software and it's gonna services. It's going to be a, a puffer, puffer fish sandwich with there some hemlock. The Microsoft <laughs> Insider Sandwich. And okay. here are the ingredients. Okay. Two slices of whole grain bread. That's reasonable. Uh, two ounces of smoked <laughs> turkey breast. One ounce of sharp cheddar cheese. A fourth of an avocado. A small tomato. A red onion. You also get mixed greens such as spinach and arugula. Mayonnaise. Dijon mustard. Honey. Salt and pepper. And then optional, you can add, and I don't, please don't, this is optional, don't add it, a fourth of a teaspoon of Windows-themed edible glitter or sprinkles for garnish. Yikes. So That sandwich is terrible. The Windows... Again, that's what I would expect of AI. Yeah, the Windows sauce that you're making is the the mayonnaise, the Dijon mustard. You don't want to know how they make the Windows sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you, if I'm going to make Paul throw out a sandwich, it's going to be a lobster roll. Thank you. There you go. Oh, you use the mixed greens to create a Microsoft garden. Oh, my God. Oh. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Help me. My there. cliche is hurting. Yeah, exactly. There's 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 a cream for that. Um, let's move on to Microsoft 365. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we mentioned uh, this notion of Copilot. So one of the things that Microsoft just announced literally was that Copilot, like uh, th- what they're calling the Microsoft 365 Copilot, is coming to one OneNote, just like all the other productivity types apps, and it's just exact. It's exactly what you think it's going to do, right? Uh, generate ideas, create lists, organize information, transform text uh, by summarizing, rewriting, formatting, etc. It's exactly what we expect AI to do to text, right? <laughs> so. Um, very similar to what we would expect this thing to do for us with uh, Microsoft Word or whatever. So we'll see. I, I'm I'm very interested in seeing what form you know these things take in different. I I I, I mean I'm most interested per- personally in Word, but even something like uh, simple. We've seen the basic uh, versions. This an email. You get an email and it will suggest replies, mm-hmm. or you start to write an email and it, it starts suggesting things you might you know it's trying to figure out what you might want to say. I think AI is going to be that kind of capability on steroids. 
basically. I, and I, often, I have to admit, I do like the little suggestions. You just hit tab to yeah. have it sort of autofill. Yeah. I do. The, the problem that I've seen, and they keep showing this, I've seen Microsoft do it several times, is you are a, a manager for a team and your team has just done something great. And instead of taking the time to sincerely write a message saying, hey, I think exactly. you're all great, they just have the AI generate it. That Send makes me feel says they did great. Yeah. so cynical. The, the, the biggest problem, so if, if just something simple, like if you use spell, spell checking or grammar checking in a product like Microsoft Word, if, you don't, if you're not a good writer, yeah. you would today probably accept any changes or many changes that this thing suggests, right? Like you would just assume this thing. Just knows go, oh, this knows better than I do. Right. Right. But as a writer, I look at a lot of these changes and I say, no, this mm -hmm. is not, not wrong. Yeah. And I have these conversations. My wife and I are both writers. So we have like really boring conversations about this kind of stuff where it's like, you're never going to believe what words suggested to me. To <laughs> you know, that kind of stupidity. Anyway, so. This is what's going to happen. This probably already happens in email. Like if you're in Gmail and it suggests a reply, people will knee jerk, say, yep, that must be right. And then as they're clicking it to go, they can, they might see it as it goes away. They're like, oh, I just wrote something nonsensical back to this person because I assumed that what this thing suggested was right. How much worse is it going to be when it's something complicated, right? Where it's, uh, I, I, or I want to write a note to the team. You know, mm -hmm. hopefully, if you're that lazy, how much time are you going to spend proofreading this thing, right? And the reality, unfortunately, is you're going to want to spend some time proofreading that thing. Um, this can be a help. I, I do I do think ultimately this is a good thing, if that makes sense. But um, we're really going to have to pay attention when we use it. And when you think about it, the point of this is that we don't have to pay too much attention. And that, yes, you're, you're, you're dead on with that. It's the trick. The, that yeah. folks are just going to go, okay, it's doing this. And uh, yeah. there was recently a great article in the Washington Post that was talking about this specific issue um, where it's like you, your child starts walking for the first time. And so you decide that they can fix one of those turbines or whatever it was that you were talking about. Earlier. Yes. Just Please because you see them the do turbine over there. Yeah. Because I've seen you do yeah. this one thing very mm -hmm. well, then I think you can do all things. And that well, is, you're, I, I, there's a problem there that has nothing to do with AI, which is that every parent thinks their child is the golden that's, child. That is a good, has invented a new form of intelligence. that <laughs> doesn't exist elsewhere. Yeah. That's yeah, my kid's been walking for 25 years. I mean, I'm impressed, but you know, let's, uh, <laughs> Let's, let's, let's see how step two goes. So, yeah, let's let's see you know, do that. But um, before we put him in the Mensa Academy over there, you know, like, like I mean, every, parents, we're all we've all done this. We all think every every one of them is the star child. You mm -hmm. know? And I think that there's some of that that we can accidentally, without necessarily having a front of mind, apply to AI. Okay, now that it's yeah. wrote, written this um, this recipe and I've seen it uh, somehow be able to make a rhyme out of an explanation for this, then, oh, I bet it'll be good uh, when I need to ask it, which of these three creams that my doctor has prescribed should I actually be using? Well, I mean, it got the it got the recipe right, so surely it can do this as well. And that's where we, yeah, we need to be careful about um, proofing it and, and checking it and making sure that it's uh, accurate. And we're not going to be, we don't do that. Nobody does that. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the problem. I mean, we, yeah. we, the, this tool, this technology will make, tools that are unfamiliar to us accessible mm -hmm. and in doing so we don't have the expertise we know to know whether it what it did is right or wrong yeah Oof. right so it's kind of the the yin and the yang of it or whatever the the light and the dark side whatever but it's uh, it, this is where the trough of disillusionment lies yes. right? <laughs> I love that term. I, yes yeah.
Right. Is it? And it. But right. you know this. And I'm hoping that's what the Kevin Scott keynote is. It's like co-pilot. It's your foot. It's your freight. Now, AI may be stepping on it, but yeah. when the forensics comes in. I know I handed been, you a gun, but you're the one who pointed it at your yeah. foot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hmm. I mean, <laughs> that is why Microsoft is being, I would say, pretty clever in calling it. You know, it's a co-pilot. The, the pilot is still the one. It is such a good running, brand. You know. it, it is. It's the right name. Uh, they. This it is, is insane. They got that so yeah. right. Yeah. It's yep. so they strange. Are, they branded it. Their perfect. branding is so bad, and they did yeah. such a. It's so. Is that right. because it came from GitHub? Because <sighs> GitHub did I mean, the co-pilot thing. I yep. know it's owned by yeah. Microsoft, but I wonder. It, it just no, no, some it's, other it's, minds it's our, were working yep, on it. I guess what I'm saying. I that is plausible. Yeah. Yeah. That's possible. I mean, it was GitHub Copilot first. Yep. But at least it's they're smart good, enough to run with it. Yep. Yeah. Because it built right into it is it's not our fault. You were the pilot. <laughs> That's right. Right. Uh, There's two steering wheels in the car, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a OneNote user. I'm interested to see what this thing will do. Uh, I, all of my abstracts for conferences and things are in there. Right. The idea oh. that I can point it to an abstract and say, hey, rewrite this. I'm jealous. Yep. You know, like that. That What I find interesting with OneNote in this context is exactly that. It's actually pretty hard in ChatGPT to take like several paragraphs of text and say, hey, give me another version of this. Mm-hmm. Well, play it's, also, with this. it's also another tool. Like I I think the, the fun thing about putting it, well, not the fun thing, the, the right thing about putting it into a tool like OneNote or Word or whatever you use is it's where you are, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I, I am literally in the app that I use to create this content, whatever it might be. Having it here makes sense. It's great that this other thing exists out in the world. It, obviously, that's fantastic. But I really need it right here. I don't want to keep, I'm not going to, my my life isn't copying and pasting between mm-hmm. two different things, right? It, it If I could do everything in here. Yeah, where I am. Yeah, that's, and that's the right way. it makes me wonder if the M365 Copilot isn't going to just be the winner. Like that's going to be the copilot impacts the most, especially because uh, you've got your own little training set right there. Yeah, all everything yeah. that you're doing in M365 is all right there. It can look at all of those bits and pieces and act on them. That I think is that's going to be really. It's, it's such a beautiful moment for Microsoft, obviously, but for whatever community there is out there of people who have just kind of been in this space for years and just watched as the rest of the world has marched by without them. And for this to suddenly happen, it's like nice. Cause like there, there is no, it, it, it doesn't matter if someone comes up with an AI based word processor because everyone uses word. Yeah. <laughs> so now this thing just has this, it's yet another reason to stay, you know, it's, it's like when you buy like Microsoft 365, I could always make the argument like, look, even if you don't use the office apps, just for the terabyte of storage, this thing is worth it. You know? Yeah. Um, or six terabytes if you get the family version. Um, here's another reason, you know, mm-hmm. that this thing becomes an over, it makes it the, more of an over. This is what the office teams are trying all along yeah. is how do we get to use more cloud? Gotcha. Right, right. right? Like, no, it's amazing. One. Yeah. yeah. This is it's a lot just, of it's, it's, it, They're just, through no fault of their own, are perfectly positioned for this future where AI is a thing. Yeah. And it, and it speaks to why did they jump so sharply? I think this vision became clear in January. And right. they have just moved heaven and earth to make it happen so that here we are coming into their developer yeah. event in May mm-hmm. with ducks rapidly following in a row or at least messaging. We'll see yeah. where the products are actually at. Yeah. That's interesting. Now more on AI, yes? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. A little bit <laughs> so more. Just a little bit more. I Yeah, I mean, up at the top of the show, we were talking about this notion that Microsoft 
just updates Windows whenever they want now, right? It's kind of a weird thing. Um, at Microsoft Edge, like Chrome and other Chromium-based browsers, is on a much more rapid release cycle, right? A new version of this thing comes out every four weeks. It is fascinating to me that when they released uh, Edge 111 a couple weeks back, that within a week, they re-released it because there was a feature in there, that stupid Bing button at the top on the toolbar, that businesses hated so much that everyone complained and they rushed out a, a, a new version of that to correct this mistake. It is equally amazing to me that since that happened, Microsoft has released three new features for Microsoft Edge that did not come out when 111 first shipped. They've just come out since. And it's like, what? <laughs> Why? But, you know, here we are. And by the way, this isn't the only one. I should say we talked about Edge workspaces. That's another one. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's in preview. But, you know, features are just kind of <laughs> like popping up all over the place all of a sudden. So. There are three new features that came out. One of them is AI-based. So if you're familiar with micro, the, the Bing AI stuff, the Bing chatbot, you may know that uh, sometime, I don't know, back in March probably, whenever it was, that they added, actually, it might have been more recent than that, whenever they did it, they added the ability to generate images similar, or actually similar, identical to OpenAI Dolly, right, which is something I've used for a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, so you could go to bing.com and you could say, make me an image that looks like an oil painting, however you want to say it. So you can do that. Um, there is a sidebar feature in Microsoft Edge, which I find excruciatingly painful. However, they are starting to add a lot of interesting new features to it. And one of them is this integration with the Bing AI stuff. And now with this, uh, what they call Bing image creator, mm -hmm. which is that feature, um, the Dolly based thing that's now available directly in Microsoft Edge as well. I mean, obviously, it's going to the cloud to make it happen, but um, you can do it right in the browser, which is kind of interesting. Um, there were two other features, uh, drag and drop image editing in the browser, which is like, okay, I, I guess. Um, if you're familiar with the Photos app on Windows 11, you will immediately recognize these tools. It is, I'm not saying 100% identical, but it is pretty damn identical. So uh, you drag an image into the browser and an editor comes up if you want. You know, one of the choices is edit. And it has all of the, you know, the filters, the adjustments, the cropping. It's It looks exactly like the Photos app. Um, you can share, you know, the edited images, say them, et cetera. Um, and then what is the other one? There is a, oh, drag and drop. Um, drag and drop. Uh, there's a new, this is the sidebar feature. So you can drop images into the browser so from a web page so you literally click on an image drag it over drop it into the the folder this is sort of like collections which is another feature that you know maybe should or should not uh, exist i noticed because i used this feature that it created a folder up in onedrive which i do not appreciate mm -hmm. um i have since deleted it but let me go look because i believe i think if you go into uh your pictures I think it's pictures. You'll see something called, I think it's called edge drop or edge drop images or something like that. And I think the reason it's there is so it can save those images in your OneDrive. And then when you go to a different computer with edge, it will just pop up in that uh, sidebar thing. It's, it's kind of like a, you could use it to, uh, to share an image with yourself. If that makes sense, rather than emailing it, you drop it into Edge, and then on your other computer, you open or in your phone, probably eventually, you open it there, and there it is, that kind of thing. So, I don't know. I guess it's April. We're adding stuff. I don't know what's happening here. This is just stuff is happening. 
So we're adding features to Edge now because, of course, we are. Well, I mean, you've got to have some reason to pop open that sidebar. <laughs> and <laughs> Look what we've done. Uh, Look what we've added. Uh, uh, I don't like the sidebar, but yeah. No. Well, the, uh, yeah. At least they've stopped popping it open on every instance of the browser at the same time. Like sure. that's that sure. seems to be progress. I just like to turn stuff off. I, I prefer my browser to be kind of minimalist. Yeah. I try to turn off as much stuff as same. I can. Get everything out of my way because I want the yeah. I want the window to yeah, be. Yeah, I'm not here for this. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm, I'm there for this. All of this. Yeah. Which reminds me of last week with the weird uh double pane situation. Right. Right. Well, I mean, if you're going to do double, why not just do three? Where, where does it end? Where, where do the panes end? It's How do you so think about painful. a four-pane view? Oh, God. <laughs> what you can know. you even fit on the screen? Right. I don't know. Oh, it could be all like phone phone size things. I will say I did just use the image generator to make the Windows mm -hmm. Insider sandwich. Oh, nice. Um, like... So I'll be sharing that in the Discord oh, for folks. That's beautiful. Yeah. I would maybe I don't, the, eat that. the little uh, those little bits around it that um, like look like confetti. Yeah, sparkles. Th those, those are the, a little alarming. Yeah, those like are the or something. The garnish that um, the garnish that it mm. said it wanted. I don't want to get a little Windows flag stuck in my teeth. <laughs> I can't stand that. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> oh boy! I remember getting. Uh, I think it was Crystal Reports sent me like the reviewer's copy of crystal 50 that's how long ago we're talking yeah yeah, yeah. and so they fill and it had a uh, oh, no. uh a helium balloon in it and right. and a bag of glitter that was like 50 so, yep and when i opened the bag the thing basically exploded it <laughs> so, went i mean i found those 50s um, in the carpet yeah for years. No, it's like when you have a, a real Christmas tree and you find the needles from like two years yeah. ago stuck under a grate or something. <laughs> Still going. My One of my sisters is, uh, I mean, she's she means well, but she did something similar for like my birthday where I got a card and I opened it up and it exploded glitter everywhere. Oh, no. <laughs> and it's like, Cheryl, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. seriously, I literally called her and she's like, hello. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, is this Paul? And I'm like, seriously, seriously. <laughs> like, yeah. That is what's amazing about that is I would never get that for you. I like I, right, I, right. That's what I mean. She it, means well, but you know, it, yeah. I'm, I'm not for a. I'm not a five year old girl, and B. Don't you don't send that in the mail. Yeah. Like, what what do you think's gonna happen? It all collects in the bottom. <laughs> you know, it's not like what do you, what did you think was what do you, I, I don't know. This is she meant like I said she meant well, but hey, it's mm -hmm. memorable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'll never forget it. That's because sure. <laughs> uh, the glitter's still around in different places. It's it's yeah. moved with you somehow. Yeah, glitter never goes. Um, all right, and then up next we've got the quick access toolbar that yeah. just won't leave us. This is this is almost my favorite topic in this entire show, and I, <laughs> I don't want to beat this one to death, but I, I'll just say just as a mini history lesson. If you go back to Office 2007 is when they introduced the the ribbon UI, right? Mm -hmm. Still controversial today, by the way. There are still people today who complain to me, literally, not every day, but literally all the time about the ribbon. And the idea behind the ribbon is a good one. We've run out of space for toolbars and menus for all of the commands that are built into Office, right? Back in 1995 or 1990 or whatever, 
Office had 127 commands or 150, whatever it was, and those UIs made sense. But once you get up into several hundreds or thousands of commands, we don't have enough room to open those menus. The other issue was that I think it was, I think the figure was eight of the top 10 feature requests for the next version of Office were features that were already in the product right. that nobody could find because they were so buried in the UI. So they came up with this ribbon thing, which I still to this day think is a good idea. Uh, just in, in the sense of exposing people to features. Nothing is ever hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, no, nothing you need at the time is ever hidden, I should say. So there's no, like, if you go to the view tab, there are no view fe- like features that are not in the view tab. Like, they're, they're, everything's there, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Problem with the ribbon is that's big, right? And so it kind of, you know, it's this big, chunky thing. If you have, like, a 16 by 9 screen, which is kind of not very tall, or a low-res screen, is it, it can take up some space. So, and there were people like me, power users who complained about it. So they came up with this thing during the development of Office 2007, if I'm not mistaken, literally right at the beginning, called the Quick Access Toolbar. It was like a mini little toolbar. You could stick it at the top. It was populated with a couple of things by default. I want to say undo, redo, maybe a save icon. I don't remember. Just a couple of little things. And the idea was you can minimize the ribbon so it goes away, frees up all that space, but there's a couple of commands. And if you're if you really like it, you could fill that thing with commands. You could put all kinds of stuff up there. If you use certain commands all the time, they could put them in the quick access toolbar. Nice. Anyway, flash forward many years, the ribbon has evolved in many ways. Uh, they, they've came up with this idea called the simplified ribbon, which one might call a toolbar. Um, (laughs) whatever. And then in the most recent version of office, now we have this notion of personalized toolbar. So you can minimize the ribbon and use Office for a little while, and then it will say, hey, we can make you a personalized uh, uh, toolbar based on the commands we know that you use all the time. I've done this many times. It's always exactly the same commands. I'm not even sure it's doing anything, but whatever. Pops up a little toolbar. You're like, nice. But since they since they started getting rid of the ribbon, not really getting rid of it, but you know, giving you ways to get it out of the way, Microsoft sometime last year said, Maybe we should just hide the quick access toolbar. Like no one's, you know, like no one really uses it that much. It's not really necessary anymore. And oh my God, did people complain? So now they're bringing it back, baby. It never really went away. You could always enable it if you wanted, but now it's on by default again. And they've added back a bunch of commands that they took away. And basically, this is just, this is like, what, what, Susan, what is it? So we're talking 15 years of UI back and forth, and we still haven't figured this thing out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, we just give up. We, we've tried our best to create a good UI. You all hate everything we do. Here's your stupid little quick access toolbar. Knock Just yourself. use that. <laughs> you know, you know what you can't put on the quick access toolbar. The the one I use all the time. Paste oh. as text. Uh, yes. Because if you make if you paste in the title of another link for me, I will stab you. <laughs> so paste <laughs> so freaking link. All right. So because I use Word so extensively, the one thing I've learned to do, and it's one of those many many things that does not sync. You have to do this every time you set up Word on a new computer. Is I go into a setting, you know, settings, advanced settings. I paste as text by default when, when whatever's coming in, if it's from another application, yep, always text. Does uh, for that for o- it doesn't work for Outlook and it doesn't <laughs> work for OneNote. It's Pro- different because they probably use some version of the word because it's different, yeah. right? And it's like, because yep. why would you have a common UI? Who would do that? Nobody does. Well, so, that. so th- by the way, that's another example of how Microsoft addresses. So, in other words, they've created a problem. And so what happened, like, I'd have, I'm going to bring this up just to kind of see what happens. Yeah. So when you when you paste anything into Word or any of these other applications, a paste options thing comes up, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you click on it. And then th- depending on what you pasted, you'll have some number of little icons there. And, of course, one of the options is 
keep text only. Right. Right. So if you were uh, like a real, you know, keyboard guy, I think you could do control T. I already do it as text. I can't say it, but I think if you type control T, it will do paste as text. I think. Uh, oh, wow. So there is there not like a universal? Because on the Mac, I no, I do shift alt command V. And that is what lets me paste anywhere so on anything. This is a controversy in Windows. Exactly. So in Windows, it should be control shift uh, V uh-huh. paste, right? Paste as text. Yeah. That doesn't exist. Uh, sorry. It does exist. It's not universal and yep. it doesn't work in Office. And you were not here for this, but sometime in the past month, Microsoft announced they are going to add paste as text to Word. Yeah. Not because it's 2023, and are you freaking kidding me? This capability doesn't exist in the word process. I know everyone who hears that's like, no, no, come on, that's in there. No, it isn't. No, and in OneNote, Control T adds a new section, and Control Shift V does nothing. Right. Yep. Every other app on Earth, Control. Well, every app I use for Mm -hmm. the most part, Control Shift V will do pastes text. Yeah. Because Word does not support this. I use that workaround I described earlier. I configure it to only take text yeah. from external. Because yeah, because yeah. I always want to paste his text because that's yeah, why I'm pasting. You do. What, what is you do. do you think at some point that it used to be the other way, and then they got so many complaints that they decided that they wanted to make it so that it's formatted text by default? <laughs> I, I refuse to believe that they haven't been getting complaints about this since 1997. <laughs> so why would they address this now? I don't know. But we, Why is this not just universal to Windows? Yeah. Right? Um, I don't know. But this is that, you know, 20 years of not having a design language, of not controlling yeah. that interface sure. and letting each team do their own thing. Got it. Got it. Oh, it's also, it's also just, let, let's bring a common sense problem to the team that creates Microsoft Word. So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting when I do control V to paste in something, it doesn't go as text. Uh, maybe there should be a way that does that. And they're like, hey, here's an idea. I, I, we're going to invent a platform <laughs> that creates a UI when you paste. And you can click on it. And then you're going to see a list of icons. And then, uh, and, and you can't tell what any of them are. So you get a mouse over each one so you can see what it says. Because there's no text on despite the fact that I have this. Incredible, yeah, huge tiny screen. Little, yeah. It's ridiculous. You lost me at take my hands off the keyboard. I know. <laughs> you know, I know. It's, well, you can, if you, you can. I think it's Control T that does it, but I never. But you wouldn't know I, that I, off the bat. I configured so it, te- yeah. it for text, so I, I only paste as text. So I've worked around this problem, but yeah. I believe you can do it with a keyboard. But you have to figure it out. Oh boy! Yep. And you're wondering. See, people wonder, like Paul, why? Why are you an insane person? <laughs> and I say, well, <laughs> you know. It's for it's because of stuff like this. It's all these little cuts, right? Yeah. What is oh, that? It's, right. Yeah, it's, 5, just been, it's like a woodpecker on the side of your head, like every day, like <laughs> you know. So but you know when that gets annoying. I think Richard, you've done for me uh, a service now in mm-hmm. the understanding of how because and you know I try to be very open minded and understand that different companies work differently, but. When I think about, you know, Apple and how, yes, there are individual teams, but there does seem to be an overall sort of this is the way that things go because you've got the head of software. 
when I understand now, I keep pointing to the right. When I understand now what you're <laughs> saying about um, all of these teams sort of getting to be their own individual uh, guiding light and how they all sort of did their own way of, yeah. of setting things. That, this starts to make a little more sense. I don't think it's great that it's that way, but at least I can understand it a little be, more. There used to be a hierarchy and kind of an understanding, and maybe it was implicit, but the, the, it, back in the day, you know, like 20, 25 years ago, Microsoft Office would come out with some UI innovation, I'll call it for lack of a better, a new UI. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when Windows had toolbars, were uh, office had command bars, you know, that kind of thing. And the idea was always that thing will become available to third party developers and will become part of windows. And it would happen sporadically, but it didn't know. It wasn't always that clean. Uh, the ribbon UI, for example, is something that was eventually made available to third party developers through uh, Microsoft's developer, you know, toolkits of the day, like at the windows presentation foundation and so forth. Um, you could do it. Uh, you couldn't really make it look exactly like office. <laughs> Right. That was always you know, a little bit off. Uh, and it, 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 it didn't always happen. And in some cases, Office just kind of went off and did its own thing. Like we're saying, like Control V is a great example. Like how something that basic has remained that wrong for so long is hard to explain. It's impossible mm-hmm. to explain. Um, they're just their own little fiefdoms, you know? There's a gr- famous graphic by Bonkers World, the Bonkers World organizational chart. Mm-hmm. It's years and years and years old, but it it's incredibly correct because it shows the Apple diagram as literally yeah. hubbed around a center point, mm-hmm. right. which is was was Jobs, and, and the Microsoft one is a set of fiefdoms all with guns pointing at each other. Right. Oh no! Right. Right. Classic. Yeah, and it's just like it will absolutely come up in the uh, the Discord. I'm sure someone will. Yeah, someone but, someone has found it already. Bonkers but, world organizational charts. And, yeah, and and, and listen. It's not true today. You know, Satya really has attacked that element. This was very much bombers. Microsoft became like this. It didn't happen under Gates because Gates was always the most technical guy in the room. And he reviewed every product and he broke up those fiefdoms. Well, you could say you will do this. Yeah, you you will will do this. They will do it. Yeah, you will do this. And and to Satya's credit, part of Satya taking over as CEO was that Bill is back. He's not the face of Microsoft in any way, but he's still he's back to doing product reviews and because he has this magic power where he says, hey, these three teams are actually all working on this one thing in common. And each of you will donate two people to a sub team and you will all use what they make. Mm -hmm. And so they they sort of undo these problems under the hood rather than ship three of the same flipping product Um, because that's happened. Yep. Yep. There it is. is. It, and it's a classic. It's years and years old, but it's like, but they still have the hangover of the fiefdom. So like this UI problem we're describing is a hangover of right. the guns era. That's right. It's not. So these days it's not as, um, I don't know, as, as angry. <laughs> it's not. It's such as one Microsoft, mm-hmm. right? Like they, and, <laughs> and, it, and pretty heavily enforced. It has good days and bad days without a doubt. I I feel but, like, well, I feel like this used to be based on um, how popular, how much money a division made. You know, when Windows was the center of everything, mm-hmm. you know, those guys didn't give a crap what anyone else said. Yeah. You know, and there was a time when Office was the biggest business at Microsoft by far. And that's probably where this kind of stuff came out of. You know, like, we're doing our own thing. Like, we, you know, yeah. I, we don't really care what happens at the rest of the company. We're doing our own thing. Um, I think these days there's an understanding that uh, this company, the different parts of this company have to work together 
it's a different world, you know. But you're also dealing now with each of them have a different paste solution. I just checked Excel. It's different again. You have key <laughs> formatting, not key <laughs> formatting. Okay. And changing any of them is going to make a certain number of customers yep. mad. Yeah, because people have muscle memory, right? They've all gotten used to that for the product they live in. Paul lives in Word, so he knows his way around Word for its paste. I live in yep. OneNote. I know around OneNote's paste. Right. There are people who live in Excel. I don't know how happy they are, but they <laughs> right. obviously right. they have their way, right? I'm, you know, no, there's no point making. I made a show called Kill, uh, you know, about getting rid of Excel. That was fun. Sure. Right. And what we're really talking about is people do things. You can do things in Excel that will endanger your business, right? Like there's no two right. ways about it. Right. Like people do remarkable bits of analysis in Excel. And then, you know, there's a computational error and you cannot find it. Uh, it's, it, you know, there are better ways to go about that stuff. So that it is, you know, there's no easy way to fix that, the damage yep. of that period. It's just going to, well, be uh, by the way, so, uh, in some future version of windows 11, Microsoft is for the first time since the first version of windows in 1995, going to change what the print screen key does on your keyboard, right? It actually dates back further than that because print screen was part of MS-DOS in 1983 or whatever mm -hmm. year that was would literally print a printout of the screen, which was text to whatever was attached to LPT1. Like, that's what it did. Um, these days, or since the GUI, since Windows, it has taken a screenshot, right, and saved it to the clipboard. Um, you know, they added at some point the Windows key plus print screen, which would save it to a file. They added the capability in OneDrive, which would prompt you if you wanted to save screenshots to your OneDrive uh, pictures folder. But now they're going to change it, and it's going to load um, the snipping tool app instead. You'll be able to go back and change it if you want it to be print screen uh, or, uh, you know, what it used to be. But um, the default is literally for the first time, what is that, 28 years? Uh, yeah. 20, no, 38 years uh, is going to change. <laughs> like, but the, but and the is, default you think people essentially are going to freak about this? Right. Like you, you, mo most people like you and me, we're, we're used to. It's just going, it just makes a copy to the clipboard and you have paint open and then you check to see if you pasted yep. it in. But depending on what keyboard you're using, print screen can be pretty buried, right? right. It's, I have to have this function key on and hit alt yep. this. And, and so you don't even know if you hit it. At least when you have an app assigned to it, you know you hit it because the app pops up. So I, I, I just, <laughs> I just wrote about this for the book. I will say it is interesting to me, God bless you, uh, that, um, <laughs> I thought I had it muted. Sorry. <laughs> you did, I, I could, I'm sorry, I can see you when they. Oh. <laughs> so, um, sorry, we have a multi camera view here. Um, yeah. I don't know why I said that out loud. I That's can't okay. Anyway, so um, when you do Windows Key Plus print screen, the screen actually flashes. Right, so you get that visual feedback that it did something. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not not a bad solution. You know, um, I don't like snipping tool. I think it's too much tool for what this is. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we're overthinking this a little bit. Um, but whatever, I, I don't, I don't mind them changing it. I, I, especially if I can just kind of put it back, but, but people are going to freak out, you know, because muscle memory. Yeah. Reasonable. I mean, it, well, I, I under, yeah, expected and understood. I, <laughs> As, yeah. I, I don't I, like losing I, my muscle memory either. I look at this from the other side of which is at least there's some people in the windows team starting to work on stuff. Cause it windows yeah. felt awfully neglected for quite a while. Yeah, it did. Yep. Yeah. And that, that ties into the thing we talked with build. Um, mm -hmm. One of the many ways that windows felt neglected is Microsoft's only big developer show would pop up every year. And they would talk about windows. Yeah. You know, nothing tells you that they don't think about it as the future more than we're not talking about it to developers, yeah. you know? 
Um, and they are this year. I, again, it's not going to be the focus. I get that. And that's fine. I, I don't expect it to be, but I, I'm very happy with that focus uh, w- with what I see uh, based on our experience over the past several years. It's good. I'm just wondering when there's going to be a Windows Copilot because that's not Windows 12. <laughs> and it, well, pro- I, I wouldn't doubt it. It's literally going to say, where do you want to go today? It's going to yeah. be beautiful, Richard. I like Windows Mom. Where do you think you're going today? Uh, <laughs> But I think M365 already owns it because that, you know, Windows is just oh, a host. Where we're sure. going to work is M365. Well, they're part of, they're part of M365. It's fine. Theoretically, yeah. yeah. Have you had your vegetables today? Yeah. <laughs> you can't go now to the park until you've had your vegetables. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, Paul. You have <laughs> yeah. to eat lunch. You're doing more writing. How can you have any pudding if you didn't eat your meat? <laughs> um, all right. How do I prove that I'm me on LinkedIn? Yeah. I, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news, but there's been some stuff with a certain social no. media network. <laughs> I have no idea. What that has slightly about. changed how a certain little blue check mark works. And uh, I have to think that this story was inspired by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so LinkedIn, which is an even smaller network. Right? Well, I shouldn't say that. LinkedIn, which is a different social media network, uh, has announced uh, they're going to provide three different ways that users of the service can identify themselves, sort of verify their identify identity, if you will, um, on LinkedIn, right? So this is actually kind of interesting. So the first one is clear. Clear is that thing that's not TS or um, what do you call it's it? Not, uh, yeah, not TSA pre, but yeah. TSA pre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, actually like a, thir- it's a, like a, I think it's a private company, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure it is. But anyway, so clear is one of those ways you can skip the line in security when you go, you know, when you fly. So they have a really good kind of uh, facial recognition based uh, system for verifying identity. Uh, LinkedIn is going to partner or is partnering with clear uh, and their secure identity platform. So they can help people prove they are who they say they are. Right. Which is uh, a, to me is a much better idea than just charging people a couple bucks a month so they can pretend that they're Woody Woodpecker or whatever. But anyway, that's a different network. Um, they're going to uh, use company issued email addresses to help verify your identity. This is only uh, work for companies with over, no, I'm sorry. It works for over 4,000 companies. Uh, so I guess very specific companies and LinkedIn will add more soon. And then they're going to integrate with Microsoft Entra, um, which is a, I think it's a, it's a service of Azure, right? They just, they just added this name a, a few months yeah. ago. Yeah, it, yeah. But it's 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 now in a uh, what I I'm I'm pretty aware that you know identity is the third rail at Microsoft, <laughs> yeah. and and a few <laughs> VPs have crashed their careers on trying to de- address identity at Microsoft because it's uh, it's the ultimate legacy problem. Many accounts over many generations of technologies, right? And right. now we have AAD, right? Azure Active Directory, the, 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 the next layer. And if you if you have an urge to descend yourself into hell, you take an old Microsoft account that you have, mm-hmm. right? Which we normally call an MSA account, a Microsoft account, and make an Azure AAD account of the same email address. Oh, we, we, the best. You know, we call this tenant-itis. Because depending on <laughs> yep. what machine you log into with that account, you either get the MSA account or the Azure AD account. Oh, like no. It's just, There's oh, also yeah. the hilarious circumstance where you got your AAD account through a school or a workplace and you got yeah. fired or left the school and now no longer have it. And you just lost access to every single bit of content yeah. that you purchased from Microsoft through your MSA because it's gone, baby. Yeah. 
not your identity anymore. <laughs> you know? Yep. So stuff. Uh, Entra seems to be representing a new set of leaders trying to get their hands around the identity problem once again. And so they've got a branding exercise going on on top of owning all these different pieces. Sure. I mean, that being said, I'm ex- I'm excited. You know, again, it's like somebody's working on this problem at least. <laughs> okay. It's like, I'm like, I really like the brand. I like that this is a new brand. Anyway. So who, who's going to destroy their career today? I'll just say LinkedIn is approaching the concept of identity verification in a slightly different way than one of its competitors. Mm-hmm. Then a Leave couple it of its competitors, because uh, Facebook yeah. slash Meta. Oh, I know that's also know just for It's theirs. crazy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like, here's a terrible idea. Let's do that too. <laughs> Let's make you pay to prove you are who you say. Nothing you are. says leadership like <laughs> right copying a horrible idea. But yeah, that's what they're doing. Well, I'm you know I'll certainly play with it, and uh, it's just a question of is this going to help? I don't know. Okay, well, yes. this I, I'm, mean anything to anyone? I guess if yeah. you if you have a LinkedIn account and someone else has come along and made a LinkedIn account that is you as well, this is a great way right. to make sure that you are you. And also, I mean, honestly, yeah, the notion of recruiters. verifying yourself in a professional service like this is a very good one. You know, yeah, this is where you almost want it more than any than than in other yeah. places. And yeah, I never saw a, a reason to get like a blue badge on Twitter, but I. Yeah, you want to make sure you're you on this thing. And you certainly want to do it to make sure that no one else is you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. that'd be the the best reason to do it. Yeah, and I was just thinking about, a, you know, a company, a recruiter from a company reaches out. You want to make sure that that's a real person mm-hmm. from that company exactly. and not right. some there random you go. Yeah, individual. that too. Yep. All right. Um, for folks who are on Android, they may soon have access, or do they have now access to the Bing chatbot? It's in beta. Okay. So if you're on the beta version of SwiftKey, which is the Microsoft-owned virtual keyboard for mobile, um, you can access Bing chatbot functionality from the keyboard because this has to be everywhere, I guess. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, I'm... They've not said about iOS, obviously, right? I mean, well, assuming Apple allows that, I guess. Um, but I mean, obviously, they would intend to bring it there. Um, yeah, this is this is a race to eyeballs for Microsoft, from what I can tell. And uh, they're going to have as many integration points as possible. Um, not, not that, honestly, many of these are probably big integration points. I mean, Microsoft Edge user base, uh, Swift Key user base, I'm not really sure what to say there, but... Um, they want people to, yeah, they want people to hit this thing. So, Do you remember when Bill Gates put out the security letter, the trusted compute letter? Yeah, sure I do. Uh, yep. And and it basically made every team stop what they were doing and work on yep. security. And before that, in the 90s, there was the Internet Tidal Wave letter. Mm-hmm. Did he put out a co-pilot letter? Because <laughs> because one of the things that happened with both oh, of those yeah. is like stuff just showed up everywhere. And some of it was dumb. I guess the question you're really asking is, did Bill Gates write those yeah. memos himself? I'm pretty sure he did. He says I would. I would say that he did. Yeah, did he I would write, think so too. Did he write this the- one? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but somebody uh, did. Yeah, and it's somebody because literally, it's like every team needs to say something. The next, the next great quarter. Uh, corporate memo will not be written on SwiftKey. Is going to be my <laughs> guess. Um, I could be wrong. I could be. But wrong. I mean, hey, you're building bits and pieces for Android in Microsoft and this letter comes across your desk. Like, what do you do? It's like, Oh, I know. <laughs> yep. 
It happened pretty quick. Yeah. I, I remember when SQL, you know, after the Gates letter on the Internet tidal wave, SQL Server would output as HTML for a query. Oh, sure. sure. It was such a bad idea, but it's sure. like yep. they complied with the requirement. Yep. It's amazing. Anyway, yeah. I, I get it. Uh, anything else you want to say about uh, Bing uh, with Swift? I've said too much about Bing, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, well, then let's head into Xbox Corner. Hooray. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff this week. Um, oops. So... Every well, not everyone. Most people have probably heard of Xbox Game Pass, uh, which is the service on the console where you can stream or not stream. I'm sorry, you can uh, you basically subscribe and have access to a collection of over 100 game titles that you can you actually download and install. Right, you don't actually stream them, but there's also Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, which provides you that capability plus the ability to stream some number of games. Um, less well known, perhaps, is something called PC Game Pass, which, as its name suggests, is the PC version of this. Um, it's actually it's actually a really good service. I, I used mm. it while I was in Mexico uh, in March. Um, it like Xbox Game Pass. It's nine ninety nine a month. If you get Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, you actually get Xbox Game Pass, PC Game Pass, and the game streaming service uh, Xbox Cloud Gaming. Um, but it has been in preview. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know since last year, maybe longer. I'm not even really sure. So apparently now it has come out of preview. Oh, wow. It's available in an additional 40 markets. Um, so it's basically all over the world. Um, it provides, you know, like I said, $9.99 a month. Um, I don't know the exact number of games that are available. I'm going to guess that it's not as, well, no, I'm not going to guess. It's definitely not as many as you see on uh, Xbox. But if you have Windows 10 or 11, you can bring up the Xbox app. Uh, that app has a couple of different primary functions, but one of them is as a front end to this service. And this is where you can go and see what's available through your subscription, download them to your computer, install them, and then, you know, play them. So it's actually, it's actually a very good service. So, and there are games there you want to play is what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And if you, um, well, yeah. So right now, like on my current, I can't look at it now, but the, the, my main Microsoft account, I do not have an account on PC game pass. So, the only thing the Xbox app does for me is show me the games I purchased, which I also have access to, obviously, uh, through Microsoft. But um, if you have an X, you know, it's like a, it's like anything else. Like if you have um, a music subscription service, you have access to their entire library plus your own music. You know, depending on the service, uh, it works like that. But for games, so that's yeah, good. Well, they put they put Bethesda's Starfield in the list, which there you go. Is good. <laughs> that's a game that's been in the making for a decade plus. Yeah. So. Everybody's going to pay attention to that game. For actually, sure. I should say, if you let me see, let me just bring it up here. Uh, yeah, actually, the default view is Game Pass, so you can you you can the Xbox app in this case actually works a little bit like an ad because you can see what games are available through the right through Game Pass, right? So you can just kind of browse the list and see if there's anything good in there. But it's like all the you know the Halo stuff's all in there. Age of Empires, Gears games, Gears War games are all in there. There's a lot of stuff. It's good. Yeah. But it's always the marquee title. Like, is that going to be part of that? Or they offer well, all those stuff? Yeah. As soon as they got, if they, when they get Activision Blizzard and the Call of Duty stuff is in there, uh, it's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> now the truth comes out. <laughs> I knew you were sitting on the fence, you bastard. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, um, <laughs> so everybody wants Bobby Kotick gone. It's going to happen. Exactly. Uh, it'll be, the they, but you, 
it's interesting to think about what that period will look like. Like, how do you tell that Bethesda is owned by Microsoft right now? Other than the fact that yeah. the brand new Starfield title will show up in Game Pass. Like, that's I was gonna say it's because the Castle uh, Castle Wolfenstein games are all and ID games are all available in uh, in Game, Game Pass. Pass. Is how right. I can tell. But okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to the average consumer, there's no way. Yeah, I, I, honestly, any difference. Yeah, they're going to treat this thing like they treat LinkedIn or uh, GitHub, actually, or yeah. Mojang or, or whatever. Yeah, or, it's, yeah, it's owned by Microsoft, but Bethesda and so forth. I mean, yeah, you're not going to see a big. Yeah, it seems it's not going to be a Microsoft hands-off. logo. Yeah, uh, certainly for the first year or two. I mean, it, although I have to say, if I was Microsoft and I'm just bitter enough to want to do something like this, I would make sure that every PlayStation game that comes out from Activision has an Xbox logo on it, just to mess with those guys. <laughs> you know, just to mess with those guys. That's how that's how my brain works. But you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> That won't make anybody angry. I am a bitter, bitter man. Um, okay. So Microsoft uh, today started rolling out the Xbox April update. There's some redesigned search stuff going on. But the big thing to me is this, uh, in this part of the world, kind of controversial uh, power options, the thing they've been screwing with for a while. And I have to say, I think they found a good compromise. So um, <laughs> I would... I. Um, I thought so much of this joke. I told my wife, I, I, it was an episode a couple of weeks ago where I made a, I made a crack about, I've, you've never seen a, a Toyota Prius kicking ass, <laughs> you know, and it, that was in, that was in reference to the fact that you buy an Xbox because you want to play video games, not because you're trying to save the environment. Right, right. And this right. notion that I'm going to have this thing go into a cute little sleep state so it can, you know, puff like clean air out of its backside while it's you know saving the planet and then when i have to actually want to turn a game you know watch a game uh, play a game i have to sit there for a minute while the thing boots up you know Mm. and this is the direction a lot of microsoft's going in they're really pushing the energy efficiency stuff so obviously whatever they do it will be an option right it's uh you if you don't want that if you want full-blown power instant on you'll always have that option that's fine but i think enough people complained that they I hope someone told them the Prius story, but they came up with this thing that I think is uh, actually it's I'm OK with this. This is a good um, compromise and it's based on something we have in Windows. And that's this notion of active hours, right? right. That you're probably not going to. Well, you might. I, I, I probably am not. I am absolutely not going to be playing video games between the hours of, say, 10 p.m. and well, 5 p.m., but whatever, let's just say 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. or something like that. So there's no reason that this console can't go to sleep. I mean, can't just turn off, right, right. during those hours. However, and, and then save energy, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, during the hours I actually do want to play games, have the thing be in a, a less time-consuming sleep state, right? Well, like, yeah, there you go. Quick, so that's, you want instant on when you want to play. That's right. The, the only thing you've got to add to that mix is, and do your bloody updates out of the side of the window when I want to play. I said that. I, 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 so, yeah, you're right. So one, one of the, uh, it's not an Achilles heel, but one of the little minor problems with the Xbox that I've experienced is, because I leave it on instant on, right? So this thing should be downloading updates, installing things in the background all the time. Yes. Um, I, many, many times I've gone to start a game like uh, Call of Duty or whatever. And it's like, yeah, hold on, you can install an update. Come back in 45 minutes. What have, what have you been doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, to me, like, it should be doing that. But if you set your, this makes something up, like you set your active hours of some 12-hour window from 9 to 9, it's highly unlikely at 9 or 1 a.m. I'm going to be playing a video game. That's the time to download those things, right? Yeah. Like, do, do it then. It's fine. It, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully this thing is 
we'll do that and it, that works. But it, like I said, however this works, I'm fine well, with it. I, I, where I, is this, Xbox Copilot? Like, shouldn't it be watching when I play Xbox. and figuring out we should be instant on in yep. this time window because that's yep. when he always plays yep. and he never plays after this point. So before <laughs> like, we shut down, let's do all our patches and then shut down. It looks like you're trying to Why play Why do we game? have to think about this? <laughs> yeah. Are you trying to play a game? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now downloading update. No, wait, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Can you have a little paper clip say that to me? That'd make me happier. <laughs> sure. It kind of sh- comes up on the screen. Yeah. It's like, it looks like you're trying to waste time. I'm going to patch to save you from yourself. <laughs> right. Because I've been looking at your M365 productivity and you really should be playing games, right? Yeah, now. exactly. Well, you know, it's to the 10 o'clock in the rapper. morning on a Thursday, right, Paul? Yeah. Um, Microsoft mom is back. Yeah, Where do you yeah. think you're going? Sure. <laughs> right. While we're at it, we're also going to turn off the uh, instant on capabilities because yeah. you obviously are not saving the environment with this yeah. thing. Okay. Um, really the best use of your time? <laughs> it's definitely not the best use of my time. <laughs> um, Microsoft has not really announced it, but they have uh, confirmed that they are turning off access to a lot of third-party emulators on Xbox Series X and S. Hmm. Um, yeah. So this one, I, I have to think this is like a copyright strike kind of problem or something. This yeah, I, is, wonder if, in, I wonder if Nintendo called because they hate this. Yeah, because there's all these retro game emulators. Yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> not that I'm cynical, but it's like, is this why the Activision deal is going through? Mm-hmm. Right. I... <laughs> I think you're 100 percent right. I think that's it. Yeah, just prove we're a good uh, community citizen here. Well, when Nintendo says you want our endorsement, here's what I need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'm. Sh- yeah, I'm sure there was a very healthy market for like ROMs and you know whatever, yep. but yeah, not on an Xbox. So sorry. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's happening. Yeah. So Microsoft has a service, which is really cool, called Xbox Design Lab. And the idea is you go up to this website and you design a controller. You can have all different color, you know, different parts. It's going to be different colors and everything. I've actually done this a couple of times. Um, in recent years, they've uh, they actually turned it off for a little while and turned it back on because they wanted to support a couple of different things. First is the new controller type, which debuted with the Xbox Series X and S. This is the one that has the button in the middle for sharing, right, where you can take a screenshot or record a video. So that now these customizable controllers, uh, so you know, are that form. But there's also a new version of what used to be called the Xbox Elite controller, the, the wireless Elite controller, whatever the name was. So the Xbox Elite Series Two is a kind of a middle ground controller. So it, you know, the normal controller is sixty sixty nine dollars. Uh, the Elite, the full blown Elite, was like I want to say three hundred bucks. I think two fifty something like that. It's a lot. Of um, and this version is the Elite Series Two. Is one hundred and fifty dollars, right? Um, starting, I don't know, a couple of months ago, they uh, they opened up the service so you could uh, custom design your own Elite Series Two controller. And now, as of this week, they have a bunch of new um, color schemes and different uh, accent colors and so forth. And they also have a bunch of accessory packs, so you can just buy the little bits that you want. So if you want just like thumbsticks or D pads or triggers, or you just want that stuff but not a new controller, you can actually customize those as well, which is kind of cool. Um, so it's just kind of a kind of a neat way to get the ultimate, you know, version of the controller you like uh, customized. Well, some of these colors look like you could land aircraft with them. I know. I, love, I wish they look gaudy. Them. I think they're pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I do too. But I like this. I like customization. Like, make your controller yeah. your own. 
I just, this is, yeah. I mean, dating back to, uh, I guess, the Windows 95 Plus pack. Remember this thing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People used to make fun of it. And I was like, you know what? People like to make things their own. You could have, yeah. like, you know, fun little icon sets and the mouse cursor looks like a little mouse or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, people like stuff like that. But there's really no change to the controls. It's just no. just a look. <laughs> Well, uh, no, not to the not to the base control. Like the Elite Series Two controller supports two different styles of uh, D pads. For example, mm-hmm. there's the one that looks like a radar dish, and then you have yeah. the one that's like the four prongs, and the these support both. So if you get a customized version of that, you'll have that color scheme in both styles. But right. no, there's no custom no change parts. of controls. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. All right, and then. Exciting news. Microsoft has hammered out another 10-year cloud damning deal with a company not named Sony. And I know mm. I know what you're thinking. We've run out of those companies, but we haven't. <laughs> so, um, there's a company in, uh, well, it's a carrier, actually, in the UK called EE, which I will pronounce EE. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, eventually they're going to have individualized partnerships with me and Richard and Micah and everyone else. I don't know. Like basically everything on the planet that is not Sony has agreed to partner with Microsoft for 10 years on cloud gaming. Uh, so geez, whatever. Okay. But the interesting thing about this maybe uh, is that this sort of hints at the fact that there will be cloud gaming of PC games, right? So if you follow, Xbox Cloud Gaming, which is that feature of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, those games are Xbox console games, right, up in the mm-hmm. cloud. In fact, I think they're all Xbox Series X games right now, or they're running on Xbox Series X. This specifically says uh, a commitment to cloud gaming to bring PC games built by Activision Blizzard following the acquisition and yeah. Xbox to EE customers, which suggests that if this act, uh, if this acquisition goes through, Microsoft is going to be bringing PC class games to cloud uh, streaming as well. Interesting. So, interesting. Yeah. I support it. All right. And now, all more evidence that bits and pieces are being cleaned up at the end of the Activision deal here. Yeah. Some yep. tit for tat and stuff going on. Up next, it's time for the back of the book. But I do want to take a quick little moment to remind everybody out there about a little thing called Club Twit at twit.tv slash club twit. When you head there, you will learn about our club where for uh, starting at $7 a month or $84 a year, you too can join the club. And when you do, you get lots of great stuff. First, you get access to every single Twit show with no ads. It's just the content uh, because you, in effect, are the sponsor of the show. You are supporting us directly. And so you get to have uh, all of those shows with no ads. Um, and then you also get access to several other things, including the uh, Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else. It's behind the scenes, before the show, after the show. Uh, special club events will also get posted there from time to time. And access to the members-only Discord server which is where you can go to, uh, at least for this show, get the show notes for the show early. Um, You also, in some cases, get to see images like the ones I generated earlier of a sandwich. That might end up uh, making its way, but, you know, get early access to that fun stuff. It's also a place where you can go to chat with your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. One of my co-hosts, Rosemary Orchard of iOS Today, is an incredibly active member of the club, uh, regularly responding with answers. Answering questions, all sorts of fun stuff. And along with all of that, 
you also are going to get to check out some great shows. There's the Untitled Linux Show, which is, as you might guess, a show all about Linux. You also can watch Hands on Mac, which is my uh, short format show that's all about tips and tricks related to Apple devices and the, um, wow, Home Theater Geeks is what it's called. Home Theater Geeks, which uh, recently relaunched with Scott Wilkinson. So if you've got home theater stuff, you can check that out. And then for those of you who watch Windows Weekly, I know the one you really want to see is Hands on Windows with Paul Therott, where Paul provides some great tips and tricks uh, and all sorts of fun stuff. I, I hear well, you'll be looking at the registry sometime soon, too. So uh, digging into all that fun stuff as part of Club Twit. And honestly, we continue to make the club more and more valuable as time goes on. So you want to hop on now, join the club, twit.tv slash club twit. And thank you to all of you supporters out there for helping us continue on with our shows. We do appreciate you. All right, back from that little break. And it's time to go to the back of the book with the tip of the week first. Yeah, so I... I think in my little space of the world, I'm semi-unique in that I talk about developer topics a lot. I feel very strongly that people should learn how to write software code, right? And I think it's the best way to understand a platform is to write apps to that platform and so forth. But it can be daunting to get started with something like this, especially if you're not a child, right? Um, I think kids fall into this kind of naturally. But mm -hmm. um, among the min many, many, many ways that you can learn to write software code, the Raspberry Pi Foundation has released a beta version of a web-based software code editor for kids. It's, it's at, uh, or I'm sorry, it's at editor.raspberrypi.org. And the fun thing about this, you don't have to be a kid, right? It works everywhere. You don't, you don't need a Raspberry Pi. It's just a website. So anyone with a browser can access it. Um, you can save uh, your coding projects up to their cloud, right, uh, that they offer you if you sign in. And uh, right now it's just Python, which isn't super interesting, but they're going to add support for web development languages like HTML and CSS and JavaScript. And they have a free course uh, called Intro to Python, uh, which uh, the first two projects are available now. And I'm hoping they'll do like an intro to web development or intro to web apps, whatever, in the future as well. But uh, kind of an interesting little project and, uh, you know, probably not a bad way to, you know, uh, get a kind of a nice... Uh, simplified path forward uh, for learning this kind of stuff. So just kind of good to know about. That's awesome, actually. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It um, is a I bit like challenging to buy a Raspberry Pi right now. Yes, you, which is <laughs> not the only reason it's not only available on Raspberry Pi, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it, yeah. it's notable that this is not a native app, <laughs> right? That runs under whatever the Raspberry Pi OS is called, their version of Linux. But yeah, it's a web app, so. Yeah, maybe we could use AI to figure that one out. Where can I buy a Raspberry Pi? Yeah, there's literally websites for it for certain form factors, like yep, CM4 yep. or something like that. Some of the more basic Raspberry Pis are around, but yeah, but you yeah, and they uh, um, Eth, what's that guy's name? What's the guy who runs uh, Raspberry Pi? Yeah, Evan, what's his name? There's a few of them. Yeah, yeah. The, one of the Canadian name? shops has an eight. An Eben eight Upton, yeah. yeah. So back people. in December, he was talking about you know, the issues with supply and all that stuff and basically confirmed that we're not going to see a Raspberry Pi 5 until 2024 and that the goal this year is just to kind of get caught up, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. get the pipeline filled back yeah. in again. Yeah. It's It just got hit. Because they have that cool little Commodore 64 looking thing that's like yep. a Raspberry Pi with the keyboard built on top of it, you know? 
But you're, um, you know, I mean, you're getting to the point, which is the current generation of like single digit price socks, the bait, the chip that's about the size of your thumbnail. Yep. They are Pentium class machines now. I know it's crazy, right? Like they're the real that computers. Bugs me, uh, you know, from a, you know, the uh, people of uh, my generation, Rich's generation, we grew up with, you know, Commodore 64s and Ataris and basic was built in and you could learn how to program on these things. It was, in fact, it was kind of the only thing you could do unless you bought something else for it. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just built in. It was the capability. Um, I think that Microsoft did something really special in the 1990s with Visual Basic and that that could have served as it probably did at the time serve for students of that era as the introduction, the kind of soft landing in the software development. Um, I feel like Raspberry Pi can solve or uh, serve that part of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I Python, I'm not sure. <laughs> You know, I'm, it, it's it's sad to me that we don't have a VB type product. Um, I mean, there there are languages out there. Like I I think of Scratch as a great yeah. place for students to learn to program okay. on PCs. Uh, it's just the thing that's cool about a Pi is it's not in the web. That yeah. it is hardware you can use, and yeah. when you learn start learning a little bit about the shields. The, the various parts is like, first you make an LED blink. Well, it, it literally right? brings back that enthusiast element to yeah. it, right? It's not so much about going to a store and buying software for this thing as it is about putting it together and, and figuring out how the thing works, you know? But it's it's real easy now to get into physical stuff, right? To yeah. make a to make a little robot, you know, you, yep. know, you can attach pies to to little wheel sets, and like all of that is way more feasible than when we were younger. Oh like, my god, for sure! You know, yeah, you get to little weather vane type things or yeah. barometers and all that kind of stuff. It's really it's, yeah, all sorts really, of really stuff. Cool. So there's the basic programming element, and making those more approachable is great. We don't have to program in in low level languages anymore because right. we have enough horsepower to be able to afford. Uh, to be a little less efficient with their yeah. the, yeah, the yeah. infrastructure. So, but uh, you know, I think what because every kid now has a phone and is surrounded by screens and technology, the only way you make programming interesting is to make it more physical. Is to is to introduce that element of move something, beep yeah. something, blink something. Just the the they are at least until they up, get older, right? It, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I do think the physical aspect's nice. That you could gamify it a little bit. I think like yeah. the Swift playground stuff on iPad is kind of interesting. Um, a few uh, programming the, with, um, with the the you have <laughs> it's blocks and you hit them and they turn into use your words. Uh, <laughs> what is that game called? It's mining, Minecraft, Minecraft, coding with yeah. Minecraft. Wait, it's blocks and you hit Minecraft, them. You know. Please? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because the programming language underlying Minecraft is Java, yeah, right, mm-hmm. for better or worse. And right. <laughs> for a, for a long time, the kids did get into building extensions to Minecraft, uh, oh, yeah. and they learned to code Java for it. It's mm-hmm. not that difficult. Like the language isn't the issue. You, know, <clears throat> you you could make this work with some good templates and so forth. It, yeah. It's just a question of can you do stuff that they can connect with. Well, I, uh, so I I was just holding up basic as some kind of an easy thing or something. Yeah. But the truth was to take advantage of a Commodore sixty four, what you really needed to do was like peek and poke, and you had yeah. to have charts of what all these things did, and it was actually fairly complicated. Um, so yeah, I, I, like well, I like as I sort of alluded to at the beginning, this stuff's a lot easier when you're young. You know, mm-hmm. it might work out Just like the children's code editor might be better for you 40 to 50 year olds who are looking to get into uh, coding for the first time in your life, you know, kind of take baby steps in that direction. It's free, you know, should be pretty basic. Uh, yeah. If not literally basic. I was going to say there was a little, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay. 
All right. Uh, yeah, so the app pick this week is uh, Opera just today, I think, released a version of their browser on iOS that supports their free B- VPN service. Um, this free VPN is now available in every version of the browser, right? So this runs on Windows, Mac, Linux, Android, and now the iPhone. And what's interesting, well, there's a couple of interesting things. So first of all, it's free. Um, you can pay a subscription service to get more functionality. This basically involves, you know, more endpoints, more servers, uh, more devices protected, et cetera. It's only $3.99 a month. That's actually very cheap. For example, I prefer Brave and I use Brave, mm-hmm. uh, but Brave VPN costs $9.99 per month, period. There's no free version. There's no cheaper version. Like it's, it is more expensive. And so that's kind of interesting. Also, if you do have an iPhone, I don't think this is true. Mm, I'm not 100% sure. I don't think this is true on all of the other uh, devices, but on iPhone at least, it actually is a VPN for the entire device. Hmm. Um, I think for most of these, or at least certainly on Android, but I think most of these or all of these, it's a VPN for the browser, which is fine. I mean, that's fine in its own right. But, you know, a lot of times you might want to be doing whatever it is you're doing on the device, on the PC over a VPN and uh, the the iPhone version, I think maybe just because of the architecture of the iPhone actually supports the entire device. So you can get a free VPN on an iPhone through Opera. It's just a flick of a switch away. So Impressive. something to look into. Do you know about their privacy policy? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I can state it. Relative. Simplified. Like, could you read out the privacy policy? For me? Yeah, well, so I just, the I'm the curious about their login. Is, yeah, no. What? So what, they, what let me, I, cause I just quoted a little bit of this. It, um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, all traffic is encrypted. Your IP address is private. It doesn't collect any personal data or information related to your browsing history or originating network address. Nice. Uh, there's no data or a bandwidth cap. Um, yeah, no, I don't. I mean, um, no, I can't. <laughs> I'm not intimately familiar with the privacy policy, but, uh, <laughs> I would trust Opera more than I would trust Google. Right. If yeah. that puts it in any perspective. Yeah, Opera's good, gotten really good at not making any money. They're used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, that, yep. Uh, I like that you've out-cynical me at least twice today. <laughs> it is rather impressive. That's really, it I doesn't happen a lot. That's learned good. from the best. Yep. <laughs> it should be like cynic coins or something, and you can just yeah, pass it now. Yep. Ding. 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 Yeah, it's just like over the quarter, yeah. like, like Mario jumping over a block. <laughs> exactly. Ding. 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 That's funny. Yep. Right. Use a VPN. It's a good thing. Yeah. And now I believe we are shifting gears, switching gears. Sure, one of those uh, to talk about run as radio and uh, more on liquor. I'm looking forward to it. One more time, right? Uh, this week's run as radio I did with Angela Dugan, who's a regular on the show. We were talking a bit about team metrics. So this is sort of an ongoing series about we're dealing with everybody doing remote work and where are the limitations there? How do we know when people are being productive and how they're doing it? Angela has been doing this for years. She's really good at it. And her thoughts in the space were, were quite enjoyable. Just different elements of checking in with folks and, and having comparable metrics, doing both soft metrics and hard metrics or quality versus quantitative and part of uh happy people was uh, also building in training time learning time that they they pick a project that's important to them to add to their skills and share them with others and so uh solid 30 minute conversation very pleased with it i hope folks will give it a listen uh actually i just got a nice nice comment on that show or a nice note on that show saying really enjoyed it so um 
you know, it can't be hard tech every day. Sometimes it's a soft skill thing. And I just am very aware there's lots of people still dealing with remote work and really struggling with how do I keep my manager happy or managers saying, like, how do I know that my people are getting things done and that my team's holding together? Is the solution not putting webcams in people's houses? Yeah, not. (laughs) I have a friend. I'm not an expert. Yeah, I have a friend who's a university professor and like home exams and just the the level of cheating where it's not that they want a camera, that's that they want two. They want a camera <laughs> set up overhead so oh they can boy. see what screens you're using. Like, yeah. Oh I can't boy. imagine you're trying be- to do it. Set all of those up. You have to become your own producer at the same time. Yeah. And you're just trying well, to take a tag. I mean, that's, that's one thing. But I mean, like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I would be. That'd be my last day at the company right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's one thing for employment. I'm talking about these. They're, they're trying. They're trying to manage an exam with people remote, where they actually have some sense that these people have actually learned anything from their class. And I, I mean, yeah. and the fact that it's being pushed onto the professor is part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. It is dire. There's no two ways about it. I mean, for better or for better or worse, with M365 and most importantly with Microsoft Viva. Like the Microsoft Graph knows everything you've done for at, for the company. Like every email you've sent, every document you've worked on, every, every chat breath you've you had, take, every move you take. It's all there. All, yeah, except it ends with "I'll be paying you," yeah, exactly. <laughs> or "Won't be." Yeah. Yeah. That song stinks. <laughs> it is a song about stalking, after all. Right? Yeah, like, it is. Some music does not make it into the modern era. Uh, but yeah, it, and so trying to trying to be a good leader of a team where you're you're actually in service to your team and understanding where they're at and giving them room for having a, a good day and a bad day. In her particular case, she's dealing with consultants, so they're work they're working in the field anyway. So it's like, hey, you know, the subtext of this is what is the customer going to say about you? Like, how do I support you if there's a problem? Is every you know how? It, you know, always that discontinuity of you say everything's fine, the customer's not happy. Like, where isn't communicating communication happen? I mean, you know, that we ended up at one point talking about this idea that sometimes you burn out your relationship with the customer, and it's like the customer's still good, the project's still good, but I don't think I can be that person anymore. Right. Like, maybe it's time to switch me out, coach, and put me somewhere else. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, again, a really enjoyable conversation. Just somebody who's fighting the good fight. And uh, I was I pulled a couple of good clips from that. And we were talking about, you know, being on the same side of the problem. This, uh, you know, everybody, everybody, all facts are friendly, even when you don't like them. Right. Like that they because it's just it's a set of facts. You can put it over there and talk about them even when they may even when they don't not necessarily complimentary. So but yeah, Angela puts that stuff very well. Yes. That's all I got to say about run ass. All right. One, uh, oh, we just passed year 16 this week. Oh, congratulations. 16 years ago, published the first episode of run ass radio. Wow. wow. Yeah. Cause starting a podcast for Microsoft sysadmins just after Vista ship seemed like a good idea. <laughs> well, it recovered nicely. Yeah. <laughs> a few years it's been, later. It's been okay. And, yeah. uh, it's nice to be, I, I see folks, like in the sysadmin and uh, alias at Reddit saying nice things about the show. Like, well, yeah. on run as they said, or like, this is the thing yeah. I count on. So that is cool. That's how it, yeah. it's a good yeah. day. It is. Yeah. It's a good show. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I've certainly been persistent, you know, it's uh, every week since April 11th, 2000. Well, I, so I've said this many times. I, I, I started saying this about blogs and now I say it about podcasts, which is anyone can start one. Yeah. Yeah. The, the trick yeah. is <laughs> to keep doing keep it. Keep yeah. going. 
Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing .NET Rocks? It's like 2002. Yeah, Carl started in 2002. I came on board yeah. in 2005. So I'm yeah. the new I'm the new guy. The new guy. Uh, <laughs> we re- you like we, the new guitarist in Def Leppard? That's it. But we just <laughs> recorded like, episode yeah. 1874. Holy so, moly. Love it. There you go. It's incredible. Yeah. Now somewhere along the line, somehow I made 3,000 podcasts. I don't know what to do. Yeah. It was an accident. <laughs> Oops. Sure. Oops. Yep. All right, let's go into the brown liquor pick and uh, the rest of the story. Uh, we are at the end of the story, Mika. You get to be part of this, which is, mm. you know, we've gone through growing barley, mulching it, grinding it, washing it to extract its sugars, fermenting it, uh, distilling it in multiple stages. Then we put it into barrels. We are in the stage we call finishing. Which begs this question, you know, you've put this clear solvent, uh, this alcohol, into these oak barrels. When is it ready? Right. You know, it's not, it's not an obvious question, like when, what is ready? Now, according to the rules for Scottish whiskey, it must be barley. It must, uh, barley and water are the only ingredients. And it has to have been placed in an oak cask for a minimum of three years before you can call it Scottish whiskey. Now, you'll never find a three-year-old Scottish whiskey because they're really not that good. Uh, I think the youngest I've ever seen, the smallest number I've ever seen on a bottle, and that bottle is always the youngest thing that's in the bottle. Uh, There's often older things than that in the bottle, is an eight. There's a few eights out there. You'll occasionally see a 10, like Ardbeg makes a 10. Um, 12 is far more common, right? But then it's a long time to be in barrels. They're not always the same barrels. They may move them around a bit. But there is this question of when when is a barrel ready? And, I mean, and when I, I had a chance to go walking through barrel rooms with master distillers, and you asked him that question, like, when is it ready? And he says, mm, when it tastes good? Mm, that's sure. a good answer, you know? Um, the main thing to think is that, uh, and, and we talked about this in the last episode, when, when we put it in the barrel, we typically put it in at about 63.5% ABV. And it's important to remember that the other 36.5% is primarily water. You know, that's that's why it's only 63% alcohol. The rest is, is water. And it's spent time in the barrel pulling some flavors out of the wood, both alcohol solvent flavors and water solvent flavors. And so we lose a certain amount of water and a certain amount of alcohol every year as it sits in a barrel. And there are hundreds and hundreds of barrels in these rick houses and, and racks and so forth. Um, when I've walked around with a master distiller, they're actually tapping the barrels to see where the, li- the liquid level is. Like they know the level so well, they can see the rate of loss. They, it'll actually stop and go, that's too low. I bet you that barrel's leaking. And then go all around it and find a little crack somewhere. But you are talking hundreds of barrels, right? I mean, just because you've got a you know a set that's, that's going to be twelve years old, so it means you also have a set that are eleven years old, and a set that are ten years old, and so on down the line. And it takes hundreds, hundreds of barrels for production. But let's talk about the simplest form of finishing. Let's talk about a single casking. Now these are relatively rare. They didn't used to be. Uh, they used to be that that whiskeys were sold by the cask. There wasn't a bottling process. Go back 100 or so years. Bottling kind of came along later. Glass is expensive and it's a complicated process. But back in the day, and this still happens occasionally, and if you've got enough money and you want to spend it on whiskey, you can go to a major distillery and essentially buy a cask. And they'll let you come and visit your cask periodically. (laughs) Uh, Now, 
these casts are bung. They have a little thing in the center of them that are typically made of silicon, and they'll pop the bung out, and they'll thief from the barrel. And this is a normal part of the process every couple of years for any given for a few of the barrels, depending on where they're located. So they'll take a glass tube and they'll put it into the barrel and they'll draw a little whiskey from it and they'll measure the ABV. So they'll check like what's the alcohol level. They've re- they write this all in chalk on the side of the barrel. So each time it's thiefed, each time the ABV was measured where it was at, um, what the approximate level is, they have level checks for them as well. And sometimes the distiller will make notes on flavor. Every barrel is a little bit different. It came from a different tree. It's been used a different number of times. Uh, it's been through different weather. All of these factors apply in creating a flavor of whiskey. But And sometimes you'll get a, a nicely rounded barrel. Like it'll, It just produces a set of flavors that are really great. And that might become a single cask. And when I've talked to Master Stills about that, they've talked about tasting several hundred barrels to find one or two worthy of a single casking and depending on the kind of barrel uh that's only going to be a few hundred bottles you know a hogshead the typical bourbon barrel remade for for whiskey purposes is about can produce about 200 bottles like if you're talking about like take a typical single casking would be maybe 15 years old so when in the barrel it's 63.5 and 15 years on now it tastes great it's down to maybe 56 57 percent alcohol uh, and so, okay, we're going to pull this from the racks and we're going to, we're going to send it off to bottling now and pull it from the racks. It's, it's got, you know, several hundred liters of liquid in it. It's heavy. You'll, you'll probably need some help. And especially if that's a, a hogshead, if it's a punchy on like one of the sherry casts that will hold 600 bottles, you're not moving that. So, but you'll, you'll pull it, you'll send it off for bottling on its own. But that's the exception. That's just not a thing that normally happens. And it is, it's a snobby way to drink whiskey, to drink single casks. Like you can do that. Um, remember, if there's only going to be 200 bottles of this, whiskey's mostly priced by its rarity. And so when there's only 200, you're going to pay a big premium. That's going to be at least a four digit number most of the time yep. uh, for that kind of whiskey. There are exceptions, but not usually. Far more common are combining barrels to get to a flavor profile and this is this is the modern whiskey way so for the last 60 70 years really glenfiddich pioneered this technique they found a way to make a whiskey taste like the whiskey you expect like the miracle of a Macallan 12 is that it tastes like Macallan 12 every year i mean how how is that ever possible they make thousands and thousands of bottles of this. Why does it have a particular taste that enough that you will prefer that brand and continue to spend on that whiskey? And this is the talent that master distillers have is that they are they know the flavor profile destination they're trying to get to. And remember that when you buy a bottle of Macallan 12, it's only 40%, 6% alcohol. So they're tasting it at a, pieces of it at a much higher alcohol level, which is challenging on its own. And then they're also grabbing the elements of those flavors one piece at a time. A typical bottling run of something like a Macallan 12 is going to involve between 150 and 300 casks, the youngest of which will be the 12-year-olds, because that's why they want to be able to put a 12 on it. They can only, the youngest thing in that bottle is going to be a 12. So they're going to pull barrels. They're going to try and get all the flavors from their 12-year-old. And then they're going to decide what they're missing and maybe pull a couple of olders to add into the mix to get to the flavor profile they're looking for. 
And when I've been in in the sample rooms where they've pulled, they've thiefed a bunch of, bo- uh, of barrels, they'll bring them all back into the room and they have reference bottles, hundreds and hundreds of reference bottles of different past barrels that were part of a given mix for a given edition. I mean, it sounds like it's fun, but it's just like working in a chocolate factory. Eventually, you're sick of chocolate, right? Like these people do. No, it sounds love their whiskey it sounds hard <laughs> it's think. very hard and it's an extraordinary it's not automated this is literally no. people tasting something to get yes. to the exact and, and by people you really mean one or two yeah. in the entire distillery like there are only a handful of master distillers they all kind of know each other it's a it's a pretty closed club and they're assembling a flavor essentially for every addition that they make now most Distilleries don't have their own bottling facility. A bottling facility is an incredibly elaborate, uh, huge piece of machinery. Glenfiddich has their own. But Glenfiddich makes a lot of whiskey, and they've been doing it for a very long time. But most of the time, you have large bottling plants. So you got to think about everything that goes into bottling. Like, it, it, literally, from the, they're going to start with casks being shipped to, a, to the building, and on the other end, it's going to come out pallets of wrapped boxes of bottled whiskey labeled with export permits and all of those things. And so in between, there are many, many steps. So when 150 barrels show up from a given distiller for a given addition, this is going to be essentially a bottling. They're rolled off, they're brought off the truck and they're rolled into the trough set. So these are warehouse-like looking rooms, but they have troughs running down them that are very clean. They've cleaned out and are sterile. And they place the barrels over top of them. Each bung is removed. The barrel is first is measured uh, to see how much exactly how much liquid is in it and then added to the tally. And then they're dumped. They're dumped into the trough. Um, especially with bourbon barrels, the ex-American barrels, you'll see bits of charcoal and things come out of the barrel as well. So often when you see this, you'll see all of this debris in the trough, which looks shocking, but it's it's literally charcoal from the inside of the barrels. Uh, and they'll every single bar- barrel will be measured. Uh, they won't ABV them all. They don't need to at this point. That's already been done by the distiller to some degree. Uh, and they're going to adjust the ABV in the end anyway. But they will measure and ca- keep tally of exactly how much liquid arrived because they want to be able to count for all of that back to the distiller. So uh, from those troughs, the, everything gets pumped into a mixing, a blending vat. Uh, and that uh, those vats are big. There's lots to them, uh, and they will uh, take an ABV overall at that particular point. And then comes the sort of next step. So they've combined all the flavors together. All those barrels that they've just emptied, they put temporary bungs back into them, and then they get shipped back to the cooperage where the barrels will be reconditioned and returned to the distiller. Um, some barrels get junked, but recognize they use the barrels several times. In fact, often a first-use barrel... They won't use for very long. They'll use it for two or three years and then do another batch into it. So those barrels are, are repurposed very quickly. Um, after a fourth or fifth go on a barrel, it's typically assessed as used up, and they'll use that wood for other things. In fact, I have several staves from um, from the Glenfiddich Distillery that I've uh, done smoking with. I'll put a piece of lamb on top of a couple of staves from uh, Maker's Mark and sort of steam bourbon into my meat. <laughs> uh, if you can, if you can get your hands on those, uh, I highly recommend that. Nice. Uh, so now that it's all vatted together, uh, we now go through a series of steps depending on the particular whiskey and what they each 
uh, distiller will have a recipe for a given bottling. So one of the steps, arguably one of the most controversial ones, is called chill filtration. So here's the problem. Real, if I take that cast strength whiskey especially, say I just bottled that cast strength whiskey, and you put it on a shelf or you put it in the cellar and it gets cold. You take the bottle out and you look at it and the liquid is no longer transparent. In fact, it's gone kind of cloudy. Has it gone bad? People, people don't like that, especially if you bought an expensive whiskey. To have it go kind of cloudy makes they make them sad. And, and the lower <laughs> the ABV, the more likely this is to happen. This also will happen in the glass. If you choose to put ice in your whiskey, and there's some whiskeys I would say that too. But look, if you're spending $1,000 on a cast strength whiskey, they don't put ice in it. You were trying to drink it for the flavor. Why right. are you suppressing the right. flavor? Hey, can but, I ask you a quick question? I'm sorry. Yeah. I, maybe I missed this, but this this thing comes out at some APV, ABV, which is just, yeah. ABV, which is just based on, it could be a range. It, yeah, absolutely. It, so at this stage in the process, is there anything you could do about that? Oh, yeah. Well, it, most whiskeys we're going to add water to. Okay, right? and that doesn't change the flavor too absolutely, much? Absolutely, it will. Okay. But Without a doubt. So, the, I mean, is that part of the calculus of arriving yes. at that desk? Okay. Yeah, that's all. That's all part of the calculus. But before we do that, we'll typically chill filter it. Uh, although, okay, sure. I mean, sometimes I'll add water first. It depends. Again, this is very much the recipe. But you recognize that a lot of those casts when you first get it, when you first pour it in, they may still be pushing sixty percent, and that's very strong whiskey. In fact, it's yeah. illegal to sell sixty percent plus alcohol in many countries, like including Norway. Like mm-hmm. I happen to know you're a fan of uh, Abalura Bunda, mm-hmm. which is a cast strength whiskey. And so their ABV varies between 55 and 62. And apparently oh. when they got to ship a, bar- a case over to Norway, they pick through it to remove all the 60s because it's illegal <laughs> to import 60% plus into Norway. Okay. Um, and generally you don't want it like that or it, it, can you actually. They're individually labeled. They are. So you, okay. So you can actually look at the bottle and this one's 55, this one's yeah. 57. Okay. Yeah, wow. Okay. Totally normal. And again, only for those cast strengths. Do you see that particular yep. problem? Most production whiskey, because most people want the same thing every time. Yep. Will want the same ABV and it'll typically be, you know, in, in the forties. Okay. So wow. again, the distiller tells them what they want. And, yep. uh, and the magic number actually is 46. And partly that has to do with this clouding problem. Because at 40, the higher the alcohol, the less likely it is to cloud. Now, what's actually happening when a whiskey clouds? It's called fo- flocculation. So there are, there are long-chain fatty acids that still exist inside of the whiskey at this point. If you, if you heat it, it'll break them. But when it gets cooled, they clump together. They flock. And, you, and it makes uh, the liquid somewhat translucent. That's all it is. If you let it warmed up a bit, it wouldn't happen. That if the ABVs are higher, it's very unlikely to happen. Which is why typically in a cast strength whiskey, you'll never see any flocking. Hmm. It's just because the, the alcohol rate said over in, is in 55, 57. That's, that's not a problem. But, you know, your traditional spirit, like if you're talking about a gin or a vodka, they're all 40%, right? That's sort of the hmm. definition of a spirit is 40% alcohol. And if you lower whiskey down to 40%, it will flock unless you chill filter it. So you set the ABV by adding water to it, and it's purified water. It's you know, the kind of water you wouldn't enjoy drinking, but you know you really shouldn't put any other kind of water in whiskey, uh, or you're really going to change it. As soon as you add mineralization to, to whiskey at all, you're going to change it substantially. Now, are you changing the flavor of the whiskey? Absolutely. And for two reasons. One is obviously you're diluting it, so the brightness of the alcohol is going to diminish. 
but also whatever came out of that barrel had pulled substances from the wood, some of which solved in water, some of which solved in alcohol. And the, and eventually the solventability of the water gets saturated, just like the solventability of the alcohol gets saturated as well. It's been in there for a decade plus. So when you introduce new solvent, new water, it's going to break some of the esters down. One of the things that when I'm drinking cast strength, and, and uh, when I think I've done this with you, Paul, is we'll pour cast strength straight into a glass. We won't put anything in it, uh, nor should we, and taste it as it is. And often they're quite potent. And then I'll take a dropper, typically even just a little glass rod. We'll dip it in some clear, some distilled water, you know, very pure water, and put a drop of water into the whiskey. Again, seems terribly pretentious. But for an actual cast strength whiskey, what you'll see as that wad, that droplet falls through the whiskey is the esters breaking apart. You'll see a rolling effect through the whiskey as these long change acids change. And then we'll taste it again. And even with just a drop of water, you'll get a new flavor. And not always better. Hmm. You know, sometimes you want those compounds to break in the mouth rather than break in the glass. Because you're always introducing water when you drink it anyway. So all that's going to happen as we set a consistent ABV, again, for a consistent flavor profile. So that's already been done in the vat. Now, at 46%, we can probably get away without chill filtering at all. It's just a question of whether we want those compounds or not. But to understand, this is not a chill filtration is not about flavor. It's about aesthetic. It's about the look of the whiskey when you put an ice cube in it. Right. And so whiskey that is sold at lower ABVs, especially like most blended whiskeys, which are sold at 40 percent, they will always chill filter it just to avoid the clouding when you put an ice cube in it. And the filtration process basically involves chilling the whiskey down enough that it flocks and then pumping the whiskey through filters that will pick up those long chains that have now clumped together in the flocculation and they come out clear so that now when they get chilled, they won't actually flock. Are there, are there any cloudy whiskeys? Absolutely. There are plenty of non-chill filtered like whiskeys. I've seen you know. something like this. Yeah, sure. And, and, and I, and in fact, it had, I told the story of uh, Glenlivet Nadura some time ago with the Shackleton whiskey that they found, because yeah. this is all modern stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Clouding whiskey used to be a normal thing. And uh, after the Shackleton was a hit, they made Nadura. And one of the thing, claims to fame is this, oh, we don't chill filter yeah. our whiskey, right? right, right. right? And so, that one is cloudy, yeah. but you'll also see on it, it says, hey, you're going to, because it's natural whiskey, natural, yeah, exactly. not that that means anything. Uh, you're going to see clouding when you cool it, right? And often they'll even say, don't cool it because why would you suppress the flavor of it? Like the point is to, 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 to breathe that in, to take all those things in. And so, uh, but it, clouding is, doesn't mean it's defective. I think where it frightens people is when you pull it out of a cooler and it's all clouded up and you wonder if it's gone bad. Right, right. And it's just, once it's in the glass and it, and it was clear going into the glass and now it's not, you may think maybe the glass is dirty, there was something in the ice and so forth, but actually it's this natural flocculation that just, just comes from flavors. Hmm. Uh, so well, we're not done yet. So we've set the ABV, we've perhaps filtered it, now comes another very controversial tendency, but it's all in the name of creating a consistent product, which is coloring. So yeah. the age of a whiskey doesn't necessarily dictate its color. The flavor of a whiskey doesn't necessarily dictate its color. And I would, I would show you something like an Ardbeg 10. 
if you ever take a t- if you ever get a look at an Ardbeg ten, and it's in a dark bottle, so you can't really see it. But if you pour it into a glass, you'll see it's a very pale straw color. We go, oh, it's only ten years old, right? But this is Ardbeg. This is one of the most peated whiskeys in the world. This is one of those whiskeys that has like the taste of a forest fire, right? <laughs> it's like, you know what I feel like? I feel like sitting on a I feel like I'm sitting on a big leather chair that's on fire while licking a dirty ashtray. Ardbeg <laughs> can, right? Like, yeah. hey, sometimes you're in the mood for that. Now compare that to, say, a Dalmore 12. A Dalmore 12 is almost, almost opaque. It's such a rich ruby red color. Now, reason the Dalmore is so dark is that it's finished in Oloroso sherry casks. And that sherry color comes into the, the drink pretty strongly, so you get a really dark color. However, the different wood emits a different amount of color. Even if you've aged it the same amount, even if the flavor profile's right on, the color might not be what the customer is expecting. They want a consistent product. They want it to taste the same. They want it to look the same. And so... There is a color measurement system they use with a thing called a tintometer that uses the Lovabond Series 52 brown color scale. Maybe you've heard of it. Now, this was not invented for whiskey. This is actually a system they use for measuring honey colors and other foodstuff colors. And there is a thing called spirit caramel, um, which is supposed to be organoleptically inert and that AKA does not provide a flavor. It's very potent. One drop per liter is enough to change the color of that liter. Uh, Purists disagree that it affects the flavor, but it sets to a particular color. You can set it by based on the number of drops to the color you're looking for, or rather your customers are looking for. Um, There's certainly bottles out there we'll see, just like no chill filtration, no color added. So it's a preference thing. But we get back to this is the commercialization of whiskey where we're after consistency. Now, typically a given batch is 30 to 50, 60,000 bottles. So that's going to be several hundred barrels as we talked about before. We've now made the batch, okay? We've done all the treatments to it. It's now essentially ready for bottling. There are a bunch of different styles of bottles. You specify to the bottler which you, what kind of bottle you want. There's very popular common styles of inexpensive bottles that are used all over Scotland for most editions. The bottling machines have a, uh, the bottles are supposed to be sterile going in. The normal practice is they have a spray of the whiskey they're going to be bottled with for their final rinse. So a certain amount of the whiskey from the vat is going to be used in a high pressure spray that basically cleans out, gets that final blast in the bottle so that it's, it's clean. Then they go through a filling process. They are corked. They're labeled. And then they have a foil capsule put on, which is the final seal on it. Um, Sometimes the labeling is a two-step process, depending on the export license being purchased. So this is often a a taxation point. Uh, If they have a UK export license on it, they pay an additional fee to the government for export. And then they're boxed. Most uh, many whiskeys are put into uh, separate boxes, into a square box that holds the bottle that then is put into a larger box of six or 12. Some have cylindrical boxes that are put into and then put into a framed box. Uh, Boxing of whiskey can get very fancy for higher end whiskey bottles. You'll have wooden boxes lined with velvet with different fittings. Like you spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of whiskey, they're going to spend 25 bucks on a fancy box for you. Uh, then those boxes are sealed, they're packaged together, they're wrapped, they're stacked in, on pallets and prepared and, and sent off for shipping. You've made a bottling. 
most, like I said, most distilleries don't have bottling facilities. It's also important to know, especially in Scotland, that there are major conglomerates, companies like Diageo and uh, and Suntory and so forth, that own many distilleries, and so they have tend to have centralized bottling facilities. And we've just talked about sort of traditional bottling of a single malt, right? We talked about McAllen 12. There's many others. But there's also the process of making blended whiskeys. There are a bunch of different kinds of blended whiskeys. Now, there are well-known, uh, you know, the main thing that a blended whiskey talks, uh, a blended whiskey is, is typically a, some kind of single malt, maybe more than one, and then a certain amount of grain alcohol attitude or neutral spirit. High distillate distilled with a column still so that you get it up in the 80-90% range so it has no flavor in it at all. And that'll be more than half the bottle. So it reduces the price a lot because that grain spirit's very inexpensive to make. You're still going to cut to 40% ABV. Now, you know you know these names. Things like Johnny Walker, which is owned by Diageo. Um, Chivas, which only makes blended scotch, which we'll talk about in a second, owned by Pernod. Um, Dewar's, one of my favorites. I love a Dewar's 12. Uh, it's owned by Bacardi. And this week's whiskey, uh, the famous grouse. Uh Listen, I have a bottle of Famous Grouse all the time. I mean, we've been talking about whiskey for weeks here. I talk about a lot of different whiskeys. People really not only talk about expensive whiskeys. Um, we all can just decide what a level of expense is for me. I always have a bottle of Famous Grouse. And I usually have a bottle of Dewar's as well. And I'll tell you why. Because after the second $100 bottle taste of $100 whiskey, you could be drinking copier fluid. Like, what difference does it make, right? Drink, Don't yeah. drink expensive <laughs> stuff after you've had a couple of drinks. And grouse is great. Grouse is pleasant to drink. It's very nice. Now, and you're talking, that's a $20 bottle of whiskey for a 750 mil, 26 uh, fluid ounces in the measurements of the oppressors. Uh, and it's a 40% alcohol. It's about 60% grain alcohol with a combination of both McAllen and Highland Park. Now, why those two whiskeys? Well, it turns out that the Edrington Group owns both McAllen and Highland Park and Famous Grouse. So this is a way, So you, you know, we were talking about that whole blending process, like how the, the, the master distiller goes through and picks barrels. What happens to barrels he doesn't pick? Right? Some of them don't always get to a flavor profile that you're looking for. Well, this is one way to use them up. Send them off for a blend, to a blender. We'll talk about some other ways that they can be used up as well. But this is one of the ways that they get used up. Now, it's interesting to note that Famous Grouse is labeled as a blended scotch, as is all Chivas is labeled as blended scotch, as opposed to a blended whiskey. Now, this is supposed to be the rules. We're never really sure if everybody's following them. But to be called a scotch, nothing can be, uh, and nothing can be in the bottle that's spent less than three years in a barrel. So supposedly the Edgerton group uses, takes pure grain spirit. I believe it's wheat, but it might be barley. High distillate. They use a column still for it. Because remember that they also make gin and rum and a bunch of other things, which they use the same bottling plants for. And then they throw it into raw virgin casks for three years. Now, they need to do that anyway because those barrels are now in better shape to age whiskey for longer. You rarely want to use virgin oak for more than three years. It imparts too many strong flavors. So they actually age their high distillate spirit 
so they can call it blended scotch and then they combine them. They also talk about in their process that they marry the blend at 46. So normally when you're going to marry that blend, when everything goes in the vat, it's at whatever ABV it was in the barrel, right? But they apparently cut the individual distillates that they're combining in the vat down to 46 before they combine them. And they do this to avoid chill filtration. I don't know that it works because they still ultimately bottle it at 40, but they don't bother with chill filtration, which is the costly step as well. But it's part of what makes Famous Grouse distinctive is to be able to combine those whiskeys together. So while they may marry at 46, they ultimately bottle at 40. So they add more water a little later on in the process. Chivas Regal, owned by Pernod, they only blend single malts together. They use no grain spirit. But again, it's those, it's the extra casks. They combine them in a larger variety of ways. Um, Pernod owns many distilleries, so they have a lot of different barrels to play with. So it doesn't get to be called a single malt. It's not from a given distillery. It doesn't have a year on it because it'll often be young barrels because same thing. They want to use up some of those virgin oak barrels in their first fills. So they'll use that in the blend to get to their flavor profiles. But many of the others are called blended whiskeys because they do have straight spirit in it as well. Um, they tend, you know, from a taste perspective, the, the neutral spirit's pretty tasteless, but it does have a brightness to it, a sharpness to it. So it, it's really a question of uh, do you get the flavors through? And Highland Park and McAllen are both um, sherry casks, so they have a nice, rich, sweet flavor to them. Makes for a nice whiskey. Uh, I want to point out one very unusual set of bottlings, and this is Diageo. Diageo, the ones who make Johnny Walker. And Diageo not only owns famous brands you've heard of, but they own many distilleries you've never heard of. Like I talked about the Craig Alachi, they're That's a semi-famous. They have a bit of a brand. But they're not particularly well known. But there's ones you've never heard of, like Clannish and uh, Linkwood and Tenenich. Like they largely don't have a brand, but they do make a lot of whiskey, typically for blending. Many of these distilleries don't spend money on marketing. They have relationships with their blenders, and one of those very popular blending places for Diageo is, of course, Johnny Walker. They make a tremendous amount of whiskey in a lot of different flavors: red, black, blue, green, gold. You name it, they consume all that whiskey. But they do have good master distillers and the master distillers go through their barrels and when they find exceptional ones, they pull them aside for special bottlings they call the flora and fauna bottlings. They don't get export labels. So generally you can only find flora and fauna bottlings in um, when they started these back in 91, you would only find them in Scotland themselves. So I would go up to Scotland to buy flora and fauna bottlings because they were often only 20 pounds, like $30. They're very inexpensive, and some of them were exceptional. They've now become so popular, they started getting export labels and occasionally can find them. They do additional additions. The Mortlock, which is one of the Flora and Fauna set, which, again, when, when this started back in the 90s, they had no branding. They were nobody. They were so popular, their prices went through the roof. Last time I saw a Mortlock 16 Flora and Fauna bottling, they wanted 250 bucks for it, and I bought that stuff for $40 back in the day. And now they're actually making branded Mortlock. So it literally drove it to be a brand. Uh, but a variant, all the bottles look the same. It's only the labeling that's different. Like it was a very interesting style that Diageo took to, to do that particular edition. One more thing, just because whiskey's not complicated enough. Now let's talk about independent bottlers. So there are a set of bottlers out there that some have been around for more than 100 years, like Gordon McPhail that do not own a distillery at all. 
but they have relationships with distilleries and they have opportunities to buy barrels. Sometimes they'll buy barrels and just keep them, get them to a particular age. This is one of Caden Heads, which is another one of these, that, although they actually also own a couple of distilleries. They, ho- they hold a lot of interesting barrels for a long period of time and then do the bottlings when they think they're ready. So you'll find these in some stores and wonder what the heck they are. Like, what's Gordon McPhail? They are an independent bottler. They buy barrels from lots of different distilleries. They age them themselves. They finish them their own way. And they'll typically be on the bottle. You don't buy a Gordon and McPhail whiskey. You buy Gordon McPhail's Mortlock 24. That was a set of barrels. The youngest was 20. That's now 24 years old that they decided to do a bottling on. Signatory is another one. Uh, the Douglas Yang and Hunter Liang, they do uh, independent bottlings. So they're literally buying casks, keeping them for a certain period of time, and making their own additions of whiskey. And it's part of what makes, I think, Mar- uh, Scottish whiskey particularly confusing. And one last call on, and that is to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. So the, this uh, is really a U.K. thing, although there is a U.S. branch and a Canadian branch in a few other countries. Uh, they buy barrels on behalf of their members and do custom bottlings. They are, as they're quick to say, not a whiskey of the month club. What they are is a club where only members can buy bottles from them and they go looking for bottles as well. So rather than just going to stores to buy Gordon McPhail, you can be part of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society if that works for your country. Um, Different deals in different places. It's often hard. Whiskey is one of those things that's difficult to import in small numbers. And so they will uh, push out for there. And that is the story of finishing whiskey. <clears throat> oh, let me turn my microphone back on. That's important. Um, <laughs> that then officially brings us to the end of this episode of Windows Weekly and the end of the explanation of bottling, of, I guess, creating and bottling whiskey. Um, the finishing of whiskey. The fin- thank you. The finishing of whiskey. Um, folks, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Windows Weekly. Uh, if you would like to follow along with the show as we record it live every Wednesday, you go to twit.tv slash live. There, uh, you can watch us right about 11 a.m. for the starting time, Pacific, 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, so tune in to watch it recorded live. But... We think the best way to get the show is to get the edited version, which you can get by subscribing to audio or video. Go to twit.tv slash WW. There you can choose to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. We try to be in all the places so that you can get the show no matter what uh, application you are using. Uh, let's go from left to right. Richard Campbell, uh, where can folks go online to check out your work and make sure they're staying up to date with your uh, long-lived podcasts. <laughs> so Run As Radio, still at runasradio.com. Of course, .NET Rocks is also at .netrocks.com. And you usually find me on the Twitters and the Mastodons. Awesome. And Paul Therat, thank you. Of course, therat.com is the main place to go. Uh, anything else you want to pitch? Um. <laughs> just go to therot.com people come on it's all there, <laughs> it's all there. Um, I can be found at Micah Sargent on many a social media network uh, or you can head to chihuahua.coffee that's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee where I've got links to the places I'm most active online um, I think that'll do it for this week of Windows Weekly so uh, we'll see you again next week goodbye <laughs>
Do you want to hear about the latest news happening in the tech world from the people who write the article, sometimes from the people who are actually making the news? Well, we got a show for you here at twit.tv. It's called Tech News Weekly. Me, Jason Howell, and my co-host, Micah Sargent, we talk with some amazing people each and every Thursday on Tech News Weekly. And we share a little bit of our own insights in each of us bringing a story of the week. That's at twit.tv slash TNW. Subscribe right now. 